0: What is up, people? Thank you for tuning in again for another fun-filled episode. With me always, the man needs no introduction. He is still internationally known on the microphone. Men want to be him. Women want to be with him. During his sexual explorative phase many years ago, he went by Smokey the Bear. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, AG, let's hear it. I was putting out forest fires. Yeah, (laughs) starting them and putting
1: them out all at the same time. How you doing, buddy? Good, good. This is this week. We're gonna have a little bit of fun with somebody that I didn't expect to have this much fun with. Um, as not being a literary mind, I think the last time that I read a book, T to B or F to F to F to B, front to back, yeah, front yeah. to back. Uh, probably college. So you read long... like you. You read like you wipe. Yeah. Yeah. Now I just use water.
0: Now yeah. I just read on my phone. We just I talked mean, about this. I'll be upgrading to a bidet here later, later this week. So expect an update next week, I guess. Life changing. Buddy. Mm-hmm.
1: It's just, it's one of those things where I don't know if later in life, people gravitate towards literature. Or it's something that they've been raised with or understand, but I think sports has always been my filler for that. Mm-hmm. And I don't, but sports is just storytelling in its, own, yeah. in its own right. But it's very lazy to just have to sit there and watch.
0: You also like pro wrestling, which is insane storytelling. I mean, the writers, some of the people that have been writers on that are nuts.
1: Yeah, and it is it is theater in and of itself. But to actually sit down, I don't like when people are like, oh, my ADD kicked in. I really think I might because if I tried to sit down and read a book, like it just may have been undiagnosed. This books on tape are so popular.
0: This is, this is a person that I have changed – several opinions on this person (laughs) just in doing the research alone over the last, you know, five days or so. But it's kind of like I was telling you, I think, you know how they always say the expression is you got to separate the art from the artist. So this has to take that one step further. This has to be separating both art from the artist and then separating the artist and the person known like super publicly from just the human being. And I think in this situation, maybe I'm like a two for three pro in, in favor of this dude.
1: Yeah, I I went into it not feeling like he was a great man, but uh, I gained a little bit more respect for him and he just kind of... the world's most interesting man. Yeah, and he really, he does look like it. Yeah. He looks like the dude in the commercials. He's got to, that's got to be the inspiration for that, right? Uh, maybe. Yeah, because they're
0: always doing shit like big game fishing and hunting or like something like
1: that with that dude. Yeah, and that was this guy's deal. So um, before we get into Hemingway, we have... Before we get so deep
0: into Ernesto Hemingway, (sighs) Ernest Miller Hemingway.
1: Uh, I got something that I got to share. We always talk about um, you guys getting on and hooking us up with some five-star reviews on Spotify. Read, rate, subscribe, review, whatever you call it. Yeah, and it, you keep coming through. We're getting close to a hundred on Spotify, which is fucking awesome. Those Can't wait to that to the to moon. Uh, I don't know why. Oh, there it is. But uh, yeah, we got a, another five star review. Thank you, Jaw, on Apple Podcasts. Um, I don't really. I get that it's a good thing. I'm still a little confused by it, but I love that. I love that. Is it
0: the Keanu Reeves? The one? mystery, yeah. yeah. So.
1: Jaw writes, when Keanu Reeves is not acting, playing music, or riding one of his motorcycles, he likes to use an alias to get high with a friend and delve into the history of a variety of subjects and events. Close your eyes, listen, and imagine what I'm saying is true. Great podcast. I think
0: think you're Keanu. I think I'm too sporadic to be Keanu. That's the thing about editing this thing and listening to myself. I realize sometimes how just like, hey, 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 hey. I am during this, which I is never good because I still about, get excited
1: about this shit. I, I never talk about quicksand, though. That's kind of a Keanu thing, right? Quicksand, Coach? But there's many Keanus. Okay. A lot of different versions of Keanu.
0: And also like the man we're going to discuss today, a very multifaceted person. Absolutely. So, ladies and gentlemen, strap in, hang on, we're getting balls deep in Hemingway. Such a
1: such a hot name. He's not Jim Varney, but he is a character. That's going always right. be the Ernest that I think of. Oh, I hear Ernest Miller. There was a WCW wrestler named Ernest the Cat Miller. Of, of course, there was. <clears throat> so that's where my mind goes. But uh, but didn't realize this is another issue where like the age of things. Mm-hmm. Had you had asked me when Hemingway passed away, I would have probably said like the eighties. When was it? <clears throat> Uh, I believe it was 1961. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. So I would assume 20 years you could have moved everything up. But his life falls so perfectly into this little generation that I really can't wrap my mind around. Like w- us as generational, we had Iraq and Afghanistan like really close together and it was a conflict. I think have- Afghanistan was the longest running conflict ever.
0: Yeah, he he's... He falls into this weird, like, and I don't want to call it a sweet spot because of all the shit that happened and how horrible all of it was. It's an unsweet, sweet spot. Yeah, but he was born on July 1st, uh, 1899, so right before the turn of the century. And, you know, any if you've ever listened to this podcast or know anything about history, I mean, from 1900 going forward, he was right at that age, too, when World War I was kicking off and he was yeah. old enough to serve. He was still technically in an age where he could have served during world war II, and maybe in a way he did. We'll find out some about that. But, and then even at that point to go ahead and live another, what, 15 or 16 years after world war II to be able to see Korea, be able to see the fucking um, Bay of pigs invasion and yeah. all that crazy shit. Like not only is this guy, you know, this well-known, you know, famous Pulitzer prize, Nobel winning, you know, Nobel prize winning writer he's also like you you stated when you summarized it he's the literary force gump
1: he shows up everywhere and I, oddly enough i don't know why it just hit me cuz it feels like it was a pretty big event it's and i'm sure even though he wasn't in america potentially at the time or for most of it but we had a great depression yeah that was a massive deal i'm sure it was worldwide just terrible for everybody i think we only hear the american side of it but we had to have been a global enough market by that time that a depression in the united states had to affect other places that's
0: gonna have to of course that'll be an episode you know about that time yeah. but i think it really was the focal point on it was the u.s could have been i think it was just our, our markets took the largest hit. i don't think the markets were like the worldwide markets that we would expect them to be
1: Import business, though, would have had to have gone down if we didn't have the money to bring those imports in. Yeah, but
0: they always say the place where the Great Depression hit the hardest was like the interior of the country, which wouldn't have been where a lot of like goods and pork okay. services were coming yeah. in. I have no clue, so that's something we're going have to find out about.
1: But it, he just... This age group in this generation, and <clears throat> just going through and hearing everything that he was a part of and just kind of all of the melee of his life, I got to thinking like if we didn't have the Great War and World War One and then the war to end all wars in World War One and then ten years later like, Oh shit, we're running this one back and doing it again and then after that's like well, oh, ten shit. Years later. Yeah. Fifteen? So World War One ended in
0: nineteen nineteen, I wanna say. That could be wrong. Um, but then World War Two didn't kick off, really, really kick off. It was in Europe in like thirty nine or So 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. Still.
1: We had had a 20-year window where it's like, this is done. And the only reason war couldn't
0: happen at that point is everyone was still fucking recovering from the loss of the last war.
1: Well, and then we lead right into Korea. Then we lead right into Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Then we go into the Persian Gulf and just everything in there. I'm sure I'm missing skirmishes in between. Oh, yeah, there's always some shit going on. These people didn't live like a common life. And I wondered, had we have just skipped all that, would all of our literary... Works be different because we didn't have that sadness because it seems like a lot of like great artwork and even great it, music it's born of struggle I think yeah. yeah well and you look at it it's sad to say but usually an artist gives his best musical work when he's deepest in his whatever drug fucking, usage yeah, yeah, it, yeah alcohol exactly. usage yeah and yeah, then when they get sober, it
0: sort of changes. People like to read about happy stuff, but I mean, you read, you know, a lot of the time to get some type of like visceral emotional reaction and struggle and people going through hardships are kind of what first, I think what most heavily like impacts you. So I think it's why people like drama so much. Yeah. They like to see people going through shit or hearing about people going through shit. The, the best way that I think I found that I can process and kind of look at Hemingway in my head is he was a guy who was never in someone else's story. He was never a character, regardless of what he walked into, if it was the middle of it. It was yeah. just that next chapter True. in his story. He was the starring character in every single situation that he was in.
1: Never ancillary. He always had to... It was either he made it about him or it just was about him. Exactly, yeah.
0: And so kind of getting back to the... Again, back to the the beginning the front, as we discussed, and we'll get to the back later. Um, he was born in Oak Park, Illinois, to uh,
1: Grace Hall and Clarence Edmonds Hemingway. Uh, Hemingway, which i doesn't strike me as really a Midwest guy. Oak Park is like a suburb of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of born into what I would say would be more than a middle class because Clarence was a doctor, and Grace apparently had like the singing voice of an angel. She had She's like an opera singer, right? It, she That was kind of her aspirational goal, but she had sang in Madison Square Garden, That's which right. I don't know if it had that cachet back then, but mm. it was still the garden at a very it, it young never, age.
0: It never states that it was like Madison Square Garden at like 3 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, well. <laughs> Not a lot of people could show up. It was uh, still in th- MSG, though.
1: The Knicks weren't around there either. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. So. And, you know, kind of growing up, his where he really gets his love for like adventure and kind of the outdoors and things like that. He's going to take that directly from Clarence, from his father and going kind of back to what you were saying about his mother being an opera singer and maybe having a little bit, I'm not refinement, but maybe a little bit more of that sophisticated taste or something like that. Um, You could also tell after having her kids from some things that were stated that she said that she had had to, like, give up her dreams. Yeah. And, like, because of the children, basically it alluded to it, that because of the kids, she could no longer follow her dreams. So it's like, bit, you, you have to be
1: my love now. A bit of resentment, uh-huh. it felt like. But she was, I mean, their, their whole family dynamic growing up, Clarence was a doctor, she was an opera singer, she ended up making more money doing, like, voice lessons mm-hmm. and, like, music lessons from their home than he did as a doctor. So I don't know if maybe we just didn't fund doctors back then, or maybe it was... Could they have been didn't... some bad doctors, man. Yeah, that's also true. Clarence might have been a bad doctor. He didn't seem like a great dad, all told. He's the doctor you go to to get a prescription. He's not the doctor you go to for a procedure. True, yeah. Because you yeah. know he needs the business if he's that bad. He was pushing pills. But his mom really focused on some weird stuff. He was the second oldest of six. Um, his older daughter or his older sister, I think her name is Marceline. Mm -hmm. Uh, she's two years older and her mom or their mom used to dress Ernest up in the same way that he would dress the older sister Marceline up.
0: Yeah. And not in a sense of like, she used to do that, like (laughs) here and there, like up until, was it the age of six? Yeah. uh, Seven. Up until the age of seven, he basically was dressed as a girl.
1: They cut his hair the exact same way that she Mm -hmm. had her hair cut. And then the
0: only time that he got to be, like, a boy was he would go on these, like, camping trips or, like, hunting trips, sometimes for, like, up to, like, a month or two months up to this cabin they had. Was that in Michigan? Yes. With his dad. And that's when he got to, like, dress like a boy and hunt and fish and do all that kind of stuff.
1: So, uh, in a way, it almost, like, maybe sets the stage for the strife that his mom caused in his life being eased going up there with his dad and being able to do stuff. And he's like, this is better than what I do at home. I'm just going to love this for Mm -hmm. the rest of my life. At the same time though, Clarence was a pretty odd taskmaster. Like he spanked him a lot. He beat him a lot. There were times when Ernest would get done getting flogged by the belt. And they said that he would go out and hang out in the shed with his shotgun. Mm -hmm. And when his dad was walking along, he used to line his dad up in the sights. Yeah. Like uh, some very dark stuff that I'm sure probably did not have good
0: uh, in regards outside of that, like outdoor stuff that they may have bonded over and everything. And part of that could have still been like an abusive relationship. He was just like, at least I'm in a nice place that I like having fun while being
1: verbally or abused or derated all the time. And it's, I think it was definitely a different kind of like stimulus because it was probably more physical with Clarence where Grace would probably walk by and say something in his ear and then it would just eat at him. Such easy access to firearms for children back <laughs> in these days.
0: Very easy, yeah. It was well, like, yeah, just young, young owners would just go out with a shotgun out in the shed.
1: I'm not going to say that that plays a factor throughout the rest of this story, but access to guns for these you got to wonder
0: how many times on those hunts in Africa, when he was looking down the sites, if he was wondering if the animal, it morphs like a cartoon into
1: his father's head. Don't do it, Ernest. <laughs> the the guy that's taking him around is just sitting next to him. And he just took sort of that Clarence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: just thought he. I thought he was it named as Gun Clarence. <laughs> I thought that's what his rifle's name was.
1: It, as a student, smart as a whip, very good kid. But shockingly, did really well in English. Mm-hmm. Did really, really well in English. Um, decent athlete, as far as we can kind of tell. He played football. Uh, he boxed. He did kind of – he focused, it felt like, more on solo sports because I don't think he was really, as we'll learn later, not really a team player. No, not at all. And that probably started at a (laughs) young age. But had you know a fairly good academic, and he he was very shy, strikingly handsome young man. Mm -hmm. I'm only going to speak to 18 and older, but a good-looking child in in his own right, I would say. So he was definitely – attractive to the the women but his with the ladies yeah his personality wasn't that that he could blossom and really take advantage of that situation um after high school he ended up taking a job through i think it was a family friend um at the kansas city star someone that had like they
0: passed on some of his writing early writings or something even stuff he wrote for like the high school paper yeah, or he, something like that. that was, and, he was
1: involved in the paper and in the yeah. yearbook, so he had kind of learned at a young age. And then he knew someone
0: who's like father or something. Someone worked at the Kansas City Star, and so he ends up getting a, a job as a cub reporter. And that's kind of where he starts to first develop his writing style. And that's the big thing. We're not going to like. We'll mention his works when he wrote them and kind of the success that he got from them or the criticisms that the books had, we're not going to go, this really is kind of more of a breakdown of Ernest Hemingway, the person, because quite frankly, his books aren't as exciting as the, his actual life. Crazily enough, it's a very rare circumstances wh- in which the fiction doesn't live up. To that's that. what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally stranger than fiction,
1: but, um, Uh, Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, uh, the only two books of his that I read were, or have been in my life, A Farewell to Arms, and then uh, The Old Man and the Sea.
0: I read The Old Man and the Sea long enough ago that I can't
1: remember it. So, uh, I love my dad. Uh, We didn't focus a whole lot on schooling when it came to Pops. I remember I was 13 years old, and he came into my room, and he threw uh, The Old Man and the Sea and... Uh, the Pearl, mm. and he threw him on my bed, and he's like, "Hey, read these." and It's like, "What are we doing? What What is this? What What are you trying to do?" He's like, "I I read them when I was younger. I really enjoyed them. I think that you'll like them. And both very short books. So I think he kind of knew where my find any pages ripped out of there. <laughs> yeah. But these books were like made in like the '60s and Mm -hmm. '70s, and they were like the old copies. It was like the first paperbacks, yeah, and very short. So I think he knew, you know, my reading
0: style at that Mm -hmm. point. Well, that's what one of the comments they say about Hemingway's writings were that his um, writings were made to be written or were made to be read, whereas some people tend to just write for either their own not really enjoyment. Well, some people probably do enjoy it, but for their own benefit or for accolades or for reviews and stuff like that, he actually wrote to be read.
1: Yeah. And I think in that job working for the Kansas city star and being like starting out in a paper like that, Mm -hmm. he said on multiple occasions that the guidelines that they had for writers of the Kansas city star really helped form his style of like that short to the point, Less is more. It's an economy of words. Yeah. Very and if you much think so. about it from like even a reporter, it makes
0: perfect sense yeah. because you're given a certain space on a page. You're only given so many words that will fit in that space. And you need to convey as much information, but also as much of your own, you know, emotion and things like that in this story in a limited amount of, you know, words. And so that's where, like you were saying, that, that style where it's very just succinct but detailed but like each word is very considered i think yeah
1: yeah every word is thought about and he uses something i think he coined the term it was like glacier theory or something like that where he's only giving you the first 20% mm-hmm. and the rest of the 80% that's sitting underneath the water like an iceberg is the emotion that that 20% will make you try to convey on the character that that actually makes a ton of sense because i was literally watching an hour of hemingway
0: quotes and someone pop up and then i would read it and three more would already go by, and I'm still thinking about and I have to rewind to go back, So yeah. I'm still like, that is, and I think this is also one of the huge gifts that he had. He was able to write certain things and certain quotes that were oddly specific, but were so broad that they could apply to so many different, like, People. Yeah. But everybody would associate what he was talking about with like a different event or a different portion of their life in which they felt that way. It was just weirdly broad, but it would make you, you didn't have two moments in your life that that made you think of. It was one moment. Yeah.
1: Uh, and I really think that that is where, like you say, I think that that's where he shined the most. It was sort of one of those things where like you hear a lot about uh H.G. Wells in 1984 when people are like, oh, we can use this as a quote for our side, or, oh, we can use this as a quote for our side. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, it was just that general enough it's not to amb- where... The stuff's
0: not ambiguous. Yeah. It's very to the point. Yeah,
1: exactly. And he really, I think, had excelled in that. He was working in, like, the... I think it was, like, crimes and murders portion. So he kind and of started... <laughs> you have to think Kansas City, Missouri back then, probably still... Just writing the most fucking crazy obituaries. Yeah. Helping out, bumping those things up. I, he just had to have punched up so much of that stuff. And we get into the point of World War One popping off. Uh, he tried to join the military. Didn't work out too well because apparently his eyes are dog shit. Mm-hmm. Kind of funny that a guy who writes for a living has tough eyes to read things. <laughs> He's nearsighted. He can't see stuff far away. Is that what it was? Maybe. I don't know. So he decided to fall in with the Red Cross, another just noble cause to do it. And he was shipped off fairly quickly after that. Um, he went in May 1918, so the war started 1915, something like that. Later on in the war, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I think that was probably because he wasn't 18 yet when it first started. That's
0: yeah. And the other thing too is it's it's interesting that because he didn't get in as the military, he looked for an alternative. While I still think he had it in his mind of what way he was going to participate if he was given the opportunity. Yeah. I think he was like, I'll go over there as an ambulance driver, which is weird that they'll let someone drive (laughs) <laughs> that has bad eyes. That's driving wounded people <laughs> yeah. around that he can't see well enough to be in the military.
1: All right, man, um, you can't drive a tank, but we'll let you drive this vehicle full of wounded individuals. It, exactly, full of all the wounded soldiers. um I think that he had an
0: idea of once he got over there that he would be able to find his way into action and yeah. be able to serve in the, whatever capacity he wanted to.
1: Well, and that's it's a lofty goal, and but it is that expectation of he. Like we said earlier, he wanted to be the main character. He mm-hmm. wanted to find his way into it. And so he flew into France. Then he flew into Italy. He I, think, was I f- think he sailed
0: into France.
1: Okay, and- sailed. Mm-hmm. And then had to have sailed flew into Italy? Flew across
0: the sea in a boat. And then he would travel probably by rail from France to Italy. Okay,
1: that would make sense.
0: Because yeah. flying World War One. Like, not literally, yet. like by um, like the biplanes, okay. And it was brand like uh, military aviation was like brand new, okay. Definitely not going across the ocean,
1: no, no, <laughs> definitely not flying across the ocean.
0: So, he he ends up being sent to Italy and during a he was going and going around to Italian, we're with the Italians in World War One.
1: yeah. We got to talk about his first Red Cross move though. What was the first one? His first job with the Red Cross was there was a bombardment at a munitions Oh, factory. that's
0: right, and he had to pick up like dismembered body parts and mangled bodies and shit, right?
1: Yeah, so he was carrying out, they said that it was um, <laughs> he said that he knew that most of the people he was pulling out were women because of the long hair that was still attached to the bodies, and that was about the only way that you could tell. <sighs> Sounds pretty rough. You got to imagine that kind of imagery and that kind of like physical touch in that situation has to do something to a guy whose brain is already that creative to the point where I'm pretty sure there were points in some of his books where he would reference a situation very similar to that where you knew that he was drawing on something more real than, he, he, than not.
0: You could tell that he was using – and that's one thing – okay, I'll say my first thought. He, he, You could tell he used his real life experience to influence his writing or to put that into other characters and those feelings. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I wonder if that ever worked in reverse where some of the stories about him, maybe that were propagated by him or where there weren't a lot of other people to corroborate it or whatever. Yeah. I wonder if some of those got punched up too in kind of a reverse way. Could have been. Like he was so used to building stuff up in his books and everything and to make them as you know as dramatic as he could or as impactful as he could, I see that maybe bleeding over a little bit into some of the stories
1: of like Hemingway the man, more like a chicken or an egg, right? yeah which one came first, yeah, was which it the was punching up the which? stories that led to the punching up of his life or vice versa, mm-hmm. but yeah, after he did the munitions factories you were alluding to, July eighth he is running. Uh, Oddly enough, don't know how the Italian military works back then, but he was running chocolate and cigarettes to the boys on mm-hmm. the front line. The fighting, Army. Man. <laughs> that's what it's. It, that's what Italy runs on, just chocolate and cigarettes. Chocolate and cigarettes and, cigarettes yeah, it's just chocolate and, and cappuccino. And but, yeah, he was running up there, and they were attacked again. Uh, he ended up getting shelled, and he was very close to an explosion that happened. It blew him back, and this is where sort of the floweriness comes in, I think, of his story, because I heard... Heard and read probably four different versions of this story Mm -hmm. in history. And these people were historians, so I'm sure that they were just playing into the fact that Hemingway probably made a little bit of it up. Yeah. He said that he, as he was carrying an Italian soldier off of the battlefield, he was shot down and mowed off at the shins by machine gun fire. That's not what happened. I don't think that's
0: what happened. That's not what happened. What happened was he ended up being close to a shell blast. And he caught shrapnel in his knee, but
1: he also was. And then I
0: heard that he then, with the shrapnel in his knee, carried a wounded man out. So this is what I'm talking about. Like, I don't see it being the version that you were saying. Yeah, I could see it being he gets hit in the knee with some shrapnel. It doesn't have to be a lot. When you say someone got hit in the knee with shrapnel from a small
1: piece of metal, it could have been some small. And it's
0: not like it, it took his leg off, but. It was enough that you can't continue to serve, mm-hmm. even if in the Red Cross, because you can't really walk that well. And so, after taking this shrapnel in the knee, he ends up land, landing in a hospital in a, just a shithole, right? In Milan. I don't know if it was that bad. I know. I'm I oh, ironically shit saying shithole. Shit
1: yeah. It would be rough to get injured and then have to go to Milan for your, your treatment. For what, like six months of recovery time? Yeah. And he did receive, it was, I got this wrong a long time ago, not the Iron Cross. Not the Iron <laughs> it Cross. It was the Italian military cross okay. he was given for bravery. Yeah. Hmm. So he was given a military award by the Italian government for his actions that day when he did get blown up. So he must have done something fairly valiant. Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, I, I would assume that the valiance in the story definitely shone through no matter what version of the story anybody found out mm-hmm. about. But yeah, while he's in dreary Milan, he kind of meets somebody who I think was a person he was chasing for the rest of his life. Do you think the idea of this person? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, her name, she was a, an American. Um, she was serving as a nurse over there, and he fell in love with an older woman. Agnes von Kurowski. Good old Agnes. Yeah, she was, I believe she was 27. She when, was as beautiful as her
0: name sounds.
1: When they started hanging out, I think I did see some pictures of her. She wasn't too bad looking. But along with nursing him back to health, he just kind of fell head over heels for her. Just fell in love very, very quickly.
0: And in a way, he almost convinced her. She might have really been in love with him and everything. But I wonder how much of it was was him.
1: I think a lot of it was him. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was the fact that he just had his first scratch with death. Mm-hmm. Like, I think once you go through an experience where you almost die, all of your emotions and feelings are going to be in a fever pitch pretty you're, much all the time. And you're going to be looking for something to latch on to. Yeah, very much so. And Agnes was that. She nursed him back to health, but they would sneak out of the hospital and they would go see Milan and they would do this and do that together. And they were just kind of all around the city just being together that fucking shrapnel's not
0: slowing him down very much is
1: it no <laughs> shockingly enough he was cool to sneak out mm-hmm. at the hospital but uh he ended up having to head back new year's it was january 1919 uh he was discharged from the red cross so he was coming back to america coming back to oak park to live with his parents he told her hey i'm gonna go back and get stuff settled then i'm gonna send for you you're gonna come back we're gonna get married right she's like yeah i guess that's okay He's back yeah, there for yeah. <laughs> sure, go on. <laughs> he was back there for like two months, I believe it was two or three months, and gets a John Deere letter from Agnes in the mail saying that she loved him. Be some John Deere letter. It wasn't him; it was her. She ended up being engaged at that point to an Italian soldier, so I'm not sure how much it was her and just pretty much all him. Mm-hmm. Well, but I mean, it was her. She happened to just be engaged. It was kind of her deal of being engaged to someone else. Yeah, and. So let it the was, kid down easy. But yeah, it, it was kind of his first failure in love, and I think it sort of sets a precedent of being so hurt by somebody that you want to make sure that any of the hurt that you pass out from there on out is you to somebody else instead. Like of you're never you. going
0: to let yourself be in the position where you're not in control of that. Yeah, you need to be the one that dictates the terms of the relationship, and I do think that that's very. Evident by mm-hmm. the relationships that he has going forward in his
1: life. He wanted to always be the first one out, mm-hmm. not the last one in when it yep. came to love. Yep. So, licking his wounds, just trying to bring himself back. His mom was not a fan of him hanging out around the house. So, she basically said, you gotta go to college, you gotta get some shit done, you gotta do something with your life at this point. You're an adult, you went to war, I get it, come back, you need to find something to do with your life. Mm-hmm. So instead of going to college, he ends up through another family friend, um, gets an interview at the Toronto Star Weekly, and becomes a freelancer and a staff writer, which I'm sure they were probably looking for somebody with as much life experience at a young age oh, as yeah. he's had at this point. So, uh, Well, move- at the same time, too, what's the availability of people like this? True. If how many of Americans are fighting the war, too? How many people saw the front lines, but how many people had had this experience prior to in journalism before they came? Because I don't think journalists probably went into the draft or – well, I guess they probably would have went into the draft. Yeah. I draft was World War I? I think there was a draft during World okay. War I. Or just signed up for it. So you have a very unique kind of set of skills to draw from. Moved back to Chicago, September 1920, so wasn't in Toronto. Continued to work with them, and he was just sending stuff in left and right as the freelancer. What's weird to think about is
0: a lot of these newspapers have these offices. So like the New York Post has offices in Chicago and has an office in L.A. where they get all of this information. Because you can't just gather national or international news. From one city. So it sounds weird to say he worked for the Toronto Star, but he was living in Chicago. Well, they have these satellite offices everywhere (coughs) to be gathering this information.
1: Yeah, and he was still very regular with the work that he was sending in. Uh, 1920 is also when he meets Hadley Richardson. Hadley Richardson was i believe she was the sister of one of his roommates and she came down he was pretty much smitten immediately i think i read that they had met each other and spent time together five times before he finally tied the knot with her Jeez. seems pretty quick but i think it was about a year of courtship as far as yeah that's not even fair because this guy is a professional writer for a living and. They're long distancing back and forth. Mm-hmm. He doesn't writing, stand a chance. Yeah, he's writing fantastical letters. She's to like, her. I have to write you two pages. You can send me a fucking Western Union with eight words and still be better than my writing. Just wet my panties from across mm-hmm. state lines with two words. But yeah, they they got married. He was or Hadley was his first wife, and basically, as they were starting their life together, one of his bosses, who was a writer named Sherwood Anderson, said boy, I know you guys are trying to look for a place. I know money's a little bit tight. He wanted to go back to Italy. He wanted to go back to Milan, I'm sure, probably to try to rub it in Agnes's new husband's face and Agnes. But it turned out that going to France was a much better deal just because of the conversion rate. Yeah, Their okay. money could go further. He does this twice.
0: <laughs> and I don't know
1: this. Okay, not only is he a
0: great writer, he's a fucking hell of a negotiator. Yeah, Because he's convincing his editor to basically make him a foreign correspondent, which basically just means, hey, move to fucking Paris, and you can still report on the news and everything. He's this young fucking guy, and he just convinces his boss, like, you know what? You know where I think I'd be best served? In Paris. Why don't you just send me there and you pay me?
1: Yeah, and again, he was still producing for... Uh, the Toronto Star on a very regular basis. Do you think
0: if these these papers are still in existence, you go into like their offices, they've got to have the Hemingway articles? Oh framed yeah, and put I up, didn't right? even
1: think about that, but yeah,
0: yeah, like where where Hemingway got his start. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: uh, all this old yellowed newspaper that's still on the mm-hmm. wall, being like, this is a the guy. That they have we the original employed. carbon this could be copies you. and shit of it. Yeah. Like that, that would be shit that you would just yeah. <coughs> France was a very hopping place, I think, after the war. And I don't know if it France was... France in the 20s, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it was necessarily just because it was post-war or because it was a cheap place to live at the time, but Paris was still Paris by then. We had already had the Eiffel Tower. They had already had a lot of culture driven into mean France. mean there had
0: already been a World's Fair there?
1: Yeah. And There you go. Yeah. You know how I know that. Mm-hmm. Learned about it. This podcast.
0: But... Paris at this point, too, seemed to be like it was the place to be if you're going to be, uh, you know, a, a literary great. And I'm trying to think of what they, they used in an analogy about Paris, that it was like 20 years ahead of everyone else from like a cultural, um, like a rena- not really renaissance, but like a cultural, culturally advanced. Because, again, France wins and isn't like taken over in World War I. And so, basically, they're still relatively intact. So, as soon as that's over, it just fucking pops right off again.
1: They are. You have to imagine, though, economically, they're still just ravaged. From the amount and of human why, why capital so they cheap. lost. Yeah. Yeah, that's where the, <coughs> excuse me, where the conversion rate comes in. The other thing Sherwood did for him was he wrote a couple letters, basically, like... They were, like, friendship... Coupons? I don't even know. Huh? Like, friendship coupons? Sort of. Yeah, it was like he wrote them a a friendship, like, I'm missing the word. When you go in for an interview, it's a letter of recommend.
0: Like a oh, friendship. Reference, a reference letter. Yeah,
1: yeah a friendship reference yeah. letter, basically. And over just, in. Just fill in whoever name you're turning this into. Yeah. Over in Paris, they ended up hooking up with a group of writers. Some people that I've heard of, some people I haven't heard of. Uh, Gertrude Stein. Heard of her. James Joyce. Heard, heard of him. him. I uh, haven't heard of the poet Ezra Pound. Heard of them. And this blew my mind, but he actually linked back up with a dude that was an ambulance driver that he first met when he was over in Italy that mm-hmm. was driving with the Red Cross too. Um, his name was, oh boy, where is it? John Dos uh, oh, Passos. John Dos Passos. <laughs> and that, along with that, we run into our old friend, fuck Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah. What is your issue with F Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, What's
0: the F stand for? Oh, okay. You're just assuming. I, I don't It's got to be Franklin? Fuck, right?
1: Because why wouldn't you go by just that? I don't know. A lot of people went by an abbreviated first name. F? I don't know. Could I think it Franklin? was Francis, maybe. But if you're just going to give me an F, we're just going to go with Fuck Scott. Give me an
0: F. Yeah, okay.
1: And you'll know him because he was one of his major literary works. Um Gatsby, great yeah. Gatsby. Mm-hmm. So very, very famous in his own right. It was almost like Paris for writers. And I use this analogy with you last night, but Paris for writers in the 20s was like hate Ashbury for musicians in the 60s. Yeah. If you were going to be somebody in that movement, you were going to have your fingerprints on this area. It's a lot like, um,
0: colleges and what they're known for running back, you quarterback, you yes. and everything. France was basically like, you know, literary you at this point.
1: And that's really what it seemed like, because you had these guys that would later on be coined, questionably, whether it was Gertrude or whether it was Hemingway. Hemingway will always say that it was him, but they were coined the lost generation because they were the generation that had seen the Great War. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it was still the Great War and the war to end all wars yeah. because they didn't it have would to. would be <laughs> fucking crazy enough to start this shit <laughs> yeah. again? Same folks? Yeah. Same folks. But uh, they... It was so kind of cool, their little clique that they were in. They had this place called the Shakespeare and Company Bookstore that they would go to, and you can actually still go to today and see the logs that they, like, the books that they were checking out to reading, like, their log sheets for what they had checked out. Really? Yeah, so you can see all these famous writers, where they're pulling inspiration from, from what they were reading at the time that they were writing things. Fucking nuts. It's so cool to think about. Do you think of
0: them sitting around, like, the cast of friends in the coffee shop and just bullshitting.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I don't know that reference, but
0: I can Hemingway just, is fucking Joey. Just he's walking, he's like, how you doing? The amount of cigs
1: I bet that they had to just sit around and oh, smoke Jesus. back in France was nuts. But they just kind of formed their own group over there that were able to bounce things off of each other. There were parts where Stein, yeah. or, um, Hemingway would write things and Gertrude would look at him and she'd be like, too many words. Less is more here. You yeah, cut out this, this, and this. You're still conveying the same meaning. You're just adding more to yeah, it. Yeah, think of having those people to be able to bounce shit off of.
0: Yeah. Like, you get it nowadays with, like, certain musicians or, you know, if you want to compare it to athletes, uh guys going to, like, uh, tight end you, all trying to weirdly, like, help each other out because you think these guys are supposed to fucking hate each other being on opposite teams. But, yeah, you have basically, not only are you one of the best you know, writers of your age, you are now getting inspiration from other people who are also considered the best writers of their age. Yeah,
1: and give different that.
0: perspectives and suggestions and all this shit.
1: Well, and everybody had such sort of unique writing styles too that you could almost... It was like an amalgamation of thought mm-hmm. that these guys were spewing out. And they were reading a lot of what everybody else was writing over there. Like I said, they were helping them do edits. They were helping them proofread things. Like these places or these books that were coming out of there from these authors it wasn't just a solo mission yeah. it was a group of people who wanted success but they also were willing to help which sort of is odd for hemingway cuz later on hemingway like this he, seems
0: like his last this seems what ruined like <laughs> a, a team a team for him he yeah. he he, he <laughs> tried the team shit when he was back as a kid at school he was kind of solo throughout up until this point he's like you know what I'm going to give the team thing another try. And then he realized throughout the course of these relationships that he had with these people that he's like, you know what? Nope. Don't like it again. Not, not a team player.
1: Yeah. He shifted gears from groupthink to competition so quickly mm. that it just completely changed his outlook on things. His, His complimentary style is about as backhanded as you can get, just with some of the things that he said about Joyce's works, about Fitzgerald's works. He even, like, guys were catching strays that didn't even need to. He said that Huckleberry Finn was like the pinnacle of American literature Mm -hmm. had he just cut it off, like... Three quarters of the way through. Yeah, three quarters of the way through. So it's like Mark Twain, a guy who I'm sure was a... A big help for all these guys, like inspiration to read through. He's like, yeah, hey, it was cool. He just wrote too long. One of the OGs of American <laughs> yeah.
0: literature. Yeah. Someone that was a stepping stone to help get you up to this <laughs> point. All right. Before we keep going, bathroom break. Okay. Well, hey there,
1: all you sexy historians. How you guys doing? It is time for socials. Where can they find us on Instagram.
0: If they want to uh, follow (laughs) us, they can find us at Historically High Pod on Instagram.
1: That goes the same for threads as well. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter. Tell them about Twitter. Historically High. That's Historically H-I on Twitter.
0: And if you want to email any of your comments or suggestions, where can they find us at, Adam?
1: At Historically High Podcast at... Gmail.com. G- 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 gmail. All right. And back to the show.
0: All right. And we're back. So, in. They actually have a son at this point. Or they back, go back to Toronto in like October 2000. Or sorry, 1923. And do they go back and then have the son? Or do they have the son in France?
1: They have the son in Toronto, I believe. And okay. I think he probably. Like, it was a time when. He wanted to go back probably because the Toronto Star was like, yo, we're still paying you money. We'd like to see you. Yeah, <laughs> so, so maybe come back and see us for a little bit. Mm-hmm. you got to check in, dude. Maybe the healthcare system in Toronto could have been better. Yeah. Hey, you've been writing a lot of
0: stuff. <laughs> have you been sending us all of it? <laughs> so John Hadley Nicanor. Seems like a weird name.
1: Yeah, you would think that uh, an all-white kid probably wouldn't go by Nicanor, but it turns out that he was named after... Um, Ernest and Headley's favorite bullfighter because they're starting to spend some more time in Spain. And a guy who arguably is the head cheerleader, somebody that we talked about in our bullfighting episode, this is right around the time that Ernest becomes the bullfighting lover that he was. Mm -hmm. And just really, really crazy how much his love was of bullfighting, and we'll get to it kind of in a little while. Now but they did have it in
0: France, too. Remember, we did talk about that. So yeah. he didn't always even have to go all the way to Spain for that.
1: But he, he really... Spain was just a, a great place for him, and he revisits it so many times in so many different spots. Do you think this is
0: completely irrelevant, but do you think he saw his first bullfight in France, and he's like... What is this? And they're like, oh, it's something, you know, they do this in Spain. That's where it was founded. And he's like, well, shit, then I got to go see the real thing in Spain.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it could have been. I don't I don't think that he had been to Spain at that point. And this is really sort of before they I'm get sure he
0: had traveled to Spain at the, some point. Maybe just not something that was documented.
1: Yeah. I He mean, seems like
0: someone that's just fucking going anywhere and everywhere.
1: Well... Their first, and we'll talk about it here in a second, but they didn't visit Pamplona until 1923. Oh, that's right. So there's still some time. So this would have had to have been um, before that. But Family Return, finally, uh, and this is just a little bit into the future, 1924, Hemingway's first kind of book that he produced. Mm -hmm. It was a series of three stories and ten poems, privately published. The
0: first thing was actually, yeah, the first thing that was kind of published,
1: right? Yeah. Yep, three stories and ten poems. It was privately published in 1923. And then his first mass publishing in our time was 1925. So he hasn't quite risen to the novel yet. It's mostly just short stories, poems, kind of different artistic renderings of the writing form that he's putting out. But he hasn't put together that one solid cohesive banger yet. Gotcha, okay. So yeah. Um, one thing that led to that was F. Scott Fitzgerald had dropped the great Gatsby in 1925. And as soon as Ernest in that competitive way saw the adulation that Fitzgerald got for mm-hmm. Gatsby, he knew that he had to put out a novel. He knew that he was now a step behind one of these guys that he felt like were less than his equal before. Yeah. So, and that was like, he was, he was ready to go. And that leads into kind of where that all came from. Um, So was
0: In Our Time after Gatsby? Uh, I believe it was before. Okay, so technically he hasn't released what's considered his first novel, right?
1: No, and again, um, the In Our Time was just another collection of short stories. Oh, okay, gotcha. So it wasn't It wasn't a full cohesive story,
0: one one full story. Okay, that makes sense. Exactly. So, like you said, the Hemingways first visited Pamplona and did this festival of um, San Fermin in 1923. And that was where – was that where he first became fascinated with bullfights? (laughs) He just – he fell for them. He – they – again, like we talked about. That's like the OG bullfight to see. So, like like we said, I I don't feel it necessary to go see a bullfight (laughs) even for research purposes. But if you're going to go see one – I could see why that would grab you by the 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 whole pageantry of the running of the bulls and all that kind of stuff, and then the bullfights. For for someone like this, that literally just again, he thinks that this is a part of his story, mm-hmm. and he's just discovering a love that's now going to be you know part of his loves going forward.
1: Yeah, it's less of a festival of San men and more of a festival of Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. It's like the first festival of Ernest
0: Hemingway in bullfighting. Uh huh.
1: Yeah, and he absolutely loved he would get hadley up in the morning they would watch the running of the bulls there were later on like he would be bringing other expats over and other people from america and would be like you guys got to see this shit like they just kept going back and back and back and eventually like he was talking people into doing the running of the bulls i never saw that he had done it himself mm. but like he was convincing other people to do the running of the oh, bulls yeah. for his basic like enjoyment so Which, he could watch it, and then in one of his books, <laughs> Hemingway ran with the Bulls or some shit like yeah. that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they just, it was almost like he needed somebody else to say, Yeah, he was at the running of the Bulls, so he could put something mm-hmm. in there. But yeah,
0: I was at the running of the Bulls.
1: <laughs> it, his love was born. He returned, like I said, the next two years, and that was when the sun also rises. Just, he he wanted it. It was on his birthday, as we talked about before. It was early part of July that the Festival of Sin for Men happens. So his birthday, he gets this idea. The sun also rises. We need to write this about bullfighting. Jumped into it so headlong that he wrote this shit and finished it in eight weeks. That was how fast he wrote that book. I I, I guess maybe I don't know. That seems insanely short. Yeah. And I mean, I know that his books aren't always the
0: longest, and everything but i mean if he knew what he wanted to write he was getting all this that's the other thing too sometimes people just have an idea Mm -hmm. and then they write it maybe he was just like i'm i'm gonna start writing it when i'm done with all the ideas and i know what what the whole thing is going to be about so maybe that was also his style too at that point yeah and either way it's insanely impressive to
1: finish writing it (laughs) excuse me in eight weeks i don't know and for him to be satisfied with it well, That uh, also includes rewrites and shit, right? No, that didn't. That was just his first draft of okay. it being done. But I figured to write that out that fast. I, I don't know how normal. I still think that's, yeah, that's very same short fast. period of time. Uh, Hadley tells him, you need to get this shit published. You need to go talk to the publisher. You need to get back there. I think it was Scripps, something like that, that may have been his editor. forgot to write that down. But it was the only publisher that he was with. Like, throughout his whole entire yeah. career, he never, ever switched from there. Um, so he flies back to New York. They meet, and I'm sure knocked out their contract. This is going to happen. We need to make this all go right. Uh, on the way back, Ernest stops in Paris. and as you, as you do. <laughs> yeah, yep. And he struck up an affair with Pauline Pfeiffer. Pauline would later go on to be his second wife after just a, a very odd amount of time, but the sun also rises was finally published October, 1926. And it just blew up. And am I correct in, in my
0: remembering this, that when he left Hadley for Pauline and also kind of left his son at that time as well, he was basically like, Hey, I'm leaving you guys for this new chick, Pauline, but I'm going to give you all the proceeds from the sun also rises.
1: Yeah. I, it was a, he had this. De- or, so that's going
0: to make it. So that's going to make it all better. I You're guess... going to have to relatively grow up without a father. And I know I've been cheating on you with this woman that I'm now leaving you for. But here's here's a bunch of money. I mean that doesn't that doesn't hurt as much. But I
1: yeah. I they there was this kind of intense love that I think was still between him and Hadley, and it comes in the form of Hadley basically said. Yeah, we can do this, but here's the deal. I know you're cheating on me. I know you're stepping out on me. You are going to need to stop your relationship with Pauline for 100 days. Oh, that's right. And if you stop it for 100 days and you guys aren't together, basically, like, you have a cheating moratorium mm-hmm. <laughs> that
0: you can 100 days you have the option of either coming home <laughs> yeah. and being done with her or
1: we'll I'll sign the papers. Yeah. And uh, she actually cut that short after a letter just – that he had sent to her that conveyed just how much it hurt not to be with Pauline, which I'm sure he was probably still very nice to her in the letter saying, I'll always love you. You'll always be my first. We'll always have little Jack in there with us. And he even says the best thing that happened to our son goes by
0: Jack. That's why you're saying that, right? Huh? That's why you're saying, yeah, John,
1: okay, John, Jack, uh, they end up being the same guy, but he says the best thing that's ever happened to little John and they called him bumpy. I think was his nickname. And you said best thing that ever happened to him. Hemingway was bumpy or the The kid. kid. Oh, okay. John, the best thing that ever happened to him was Hadley being his mother. So like, it was definitely, he was still, he better be able to write a good fucking breakup letter. Yeah, very true. She drops that early. Like you pointed out the big major crux of it was that her and John would get all the money that was coming in from this first book. The sun also rises. Once that was finalized, like, lickety-split, January 1927, divorce happens. And Pauline had some money, right? Her She came yeah. from, yeah, some family money. Yep. And May 1927. So it's not like Ernest is like, take all the
0: proceeds, I'm going into poverty. It's like, no, she's got money. <laughs> she's going to be footing the bill going forward, so it's cool.
1: Well, so much of that I'm curious about, because, again, like we were talking about, oh, did writers just not make a lot of money back then? Because
0: you would think, like, the publishing capabilities at this point, like, it's literally printing press type stuff, right?
1: Yeah, but you're the only game in town. You are,
0: but in town. How far are you shipping these fucking books? Are you publishing this in, was it New York? New York is a
1: publisher, yeah. It is.
0: So I'm sure you're able to get those out. But this isn't where, like, people can just, like, you're getting tons of copies made, shipping them all across the country. New York Times bestsellers are blown up and you're rich overnight. Like, it probably took a while for him to see a lot of money from this stuff.
1: Yeah, I would just imagine,
0: though... He would get advances, probably, from publishers, especially after this one was a hit. Uh Then he started making money because they were paying him money up front, I would assume.
1: That's true. I didn't think about that. I just... To me, it seems like, looking back on it now, without TV, really, uh, radio, I'm sure, had its time limits as far as, like, how long programs would go. Mm -hmm. Books were kind of, like, the main form of entertainment inside. I think it was get. more
0: so the fact of getting enough books to people to make it successful and getting accessible for people to buy. Yeah.
1: I I, I could definitely see because that. Because people
0: have still been buying these books these up to now. It's not like they've never not sold.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that Hadley and John got a pretty sweet amount of money after his death Yes, from just everybody buying these books back up again. So, yeah. They were married that May 1927. Um... And October 27th, short stories, Men Without Women, published October 1927. And shocker, Pauline is pregnant.
0: He did not, not waste his time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah, I, I'm sure that that, well, May, I guess there would have been some time, but probably still like some honeymooner type celebrations mm-hmm. to be that that pregnant in October.
0: You know, without saying too cross, I don't think Ernest is the type of guy to pull out.
1: He didn't have a lot of kids, though. That's kind of the one thing that surprises me, and I think that plays into a theory that I have. But they left Paris, 1928. Uh, <laughs> and one of the reasons they left Paris was Ernest got so drunk that he stood on the toilet and pulled down a skylight onto his head. And cut himself up pretty bad and knocked him pretty senseless for a while. Probably uh, one of his first concussions. Yes, yes. that's which he had... A ton of during uh, his life. Another running theme where anywhere that Ernest goes, he's going to leave in some sort of way Maybe ailment. that's
0: where he does have a common with Ernest, uh, Jim Barney. Okay, yeah. yeah. Accident uh, prone.
1: I figured maybe it was like he does everything else so great. Karma's only way is to make sure that he gets knocked on he's the head klutz. every time, so every he's time a he leaves a situation. Well, he was drunk, so I don't know how much of a klutz move it that's was. That's true. When was he not? Yeah. I, surprisingly enough, when he wrote. He didn't drink when he wrote. Yeah.
0: One of his quotes was, no, but strangely enough, one of his quotes is write drunk, edit sober. Really? Yeah. So I think there might have been some bullshit to that. (laughs) I, I see him as a guy. He also wrote early in the morning. Yeah. So you could say he wrote hungover. And maybe still drunk. Maybe still a little drunk from the night before. Yeah, is that the catch? You just get so drunk
1: before you go to bed <laughs> that you're still able to wake up and write a little bit drunk. You can't have a nip at 7 a.m. because you're still drunk from 4 a.m. Exactly. Yeah, could be. I mean, that's it's certainly a workaround. So on
0: June 28th in 1928, uh, his son Patrick is born. and
1: Kansas City, Missouri. In Kansas so City.
0: They're back kind of second home. And then that same year, he got a cable, yes, they still did cable communications, from his mom telling him um, that his dad shot himself. And kind of going back to his father, uh, Clarence, apparently he had, you know, a ton of bouts of, like, depression and stuff like that. And so... He (laughs) was really, really
1: worried about money. Yeah. And... One of the darker parts of this is he was so worried about money that Ernest had sent him a letter back saying, I'm going to send you whatever money that you need to cover whatever you have going on. And it showed up like minutes to hours after he had committed suicide. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was like that quick. And that may have been punched up just to kind of drive it home. But there was a letter in the mail going back to Clarence Mm -hmm. saying, I'll send you the money.
0: They also say this kind of stuff from a psychological standpoint, when, you know, children don't have good relationships with their parents, and especially if it's, you know, to be believed of the whole aiming a shotgun in his father's head, wishing his father dead in circumstances, and then at some point, again, you know, quite a bit later in life, you know, this is 1928, so he's at this point 29 years old, Um, that's still, you know, that's not very old. And so, for someone to have resentment toward a parent, and then that parent kills themselves without any type of resolution to it, that's gotta that's got to fucking weigh on you.
1: Well, and you carry trauma from childhood throughout your entire life. Mm-hmm. So those extra traumatic <laughs> events with his dad, even the good times that he had, but he's still gonna remember sighting his dad up. Yeah, that's a a pretty defining moment, I think, in a child's life that he's still gonna have. <coughs> excuse me, on his mind.
0: Yeah. So. A Farewell to Arms was published in uh, September 20 or on September 27th, 1929. And basically this was kind of his like coming out Mm -hmm. party for American literature. And this basically established him as a major player in American writing. So this put him into that upper echelon essentially of American um, writers.
1: And it, a great book. I mean, I I think that it was correctly, critically acclaimed if it could, Make somebody like me, (coughs) excuse me, understand and enjoy it. But yeah, it it catapulted him into being talked about like Twain Mm -hmm. and like an F. Scott Fitzgerald, like a James Joyce, like these things. They're finally all the things that he was he was after. Mm -hmm. uh, You got to imagine that once he he probably it probably took him longer to read all of the great things that were said about the book, then it took him to write the book. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, in mid 1929, it's not all coming up roses for, uh, for Ernest. He starts working on uh, death in the afternoon and on November, 19, um, 30. So he's taken some, a longer time now to write some of these books. They're not all just coming out in, in eight weeks. He's taking his time doing this. These are now up to his point, you know, his next book coming in after a farewell to arms He's he's the type of person that he has to surpass, that he's not going to turn in something that's just that or, you know, par or below. And in uh, November 1930, he gets into a car crash that basically it, it damaged some nerves in his writing hand. And so for over a year, he basically had to kind of take a break from writing his novel. And you might be thinking like, well, why isn't he just having somebody else? dictate his words or write or anything like that. He wasn't that type of person. No. I think as far as, you know, he wanted to sit there, be over the page, be writing in his own words, not losing any of the meaning, erasing it. If you know, and maybe he just didn't fucking trust anyone else to, to be able to do
1: that. Well, I think after he hit with farewell to arms that may, <coughs> goddamn blown his head up to the point to where he didn't think anybody else was on that level to be able to
0: to be even in that write room. down the words that he's he's mm-hmm. stating that there would be something that they would try to change or what. I'm not sure yep. exactly what it was. Regardless, it was released actually in 1932.
1: And it technically was written in 29 because this whole time in the 30s he only produces one thing and it doesn't happen until nineteen thirty seven. So even though this was released, it wasn't a work that was worked on in the thirties. Okay.
0: Which the <coughs> the bulk of it had been done prior to, but there were still uh-huh. things obviously that needed to be finished. But rewrites he different things yeah. like
1: that. But his thirties, I feel like, was like his I don't know. He they had had a second child at this point. They were like Bohemian years. His travels, wanderer years. Yeah, could be. That's probably a really good way to put it. Um, so yeah, after <coughs> God damn, that last hit got me. Uh, November nineteen thirty is when the car crash happened. November twelfth, nineteen thirty one. Um, Gloria is born. So their second child is here. And so, so despite got- that hand that damages his hand, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what's it's not broke, yeah, little yeah. little Ernest. Apparently, uh, Pauline wasn't getting a lot of foreplay, but he was definitely still getting it home because mm-hmm. that that seems pretty fast. Uh, and that was kind of where something just sort of changed in the way that I think Ernest looked at life because Pauline's uncle bought them a house down in Key West and they were still kind of traveling between Wyoming. This is going to be a sentence that nobody's ever said together for these places. Wyoming, Cuba and Europe. It probably doesn't, not a normal travel route for people nowadays, mm-hmm. but uh, he just kind of got tired of big cities. He got really, really tired of dealing with like metropolitan places. There was something about like, he, he needed a place to be able to write. Yeah. And
0: like a place that was conducive, not just a home, but some place like an area that would allow him like a lifestyle and like, n- just not what a city would be a well, chance to kind of clear his head and
1: focus. And you're talking about Key West. You're talking about, uh, for somebody who's an avid fisherman and loves to be out on the water. Well, that's where he first started deep sea fishing was Key West, right? I think so. I think it was Key West where it all finally started. Yeah. For
0: anyone <laughs> not familiar where Key West is, it's the southernmost point of the United States. It's essentially a chain of islands and then a furthest island. Is it 70 miles off of the tip of
1: Florida? Um, I think it's closer to Cuba than it is to Florida. Okay. So I I don't know the age range or the mileage range, but Mm -hmm. they did say it's closer to Cuba than it is to Florida. And, excuse me, I I just, I have to imagine moving to Key West after being in a situation of living over in Paris is just a complete culture shock. Oh, yeah. Probably for Pauline. I don't think, um, I don't think, Gloria obviously wasn't old enough because she was just born but even patrick i don't think it was enough for patrick to have that big culture shift yeah but his relationship over there was so much more di- or so much different because he had an extra room to write like he had his own place that mm-hmm. was i think it was like the second level in their house maybe like a, a, a separate area yeah but he had like the run of that whole mm-hmm. area and like
0: the people that he would hang out with there in key west were like locals like, he wasn't, like, rubbing elbows with, like, people in high study. It was, like, the locals of Key West, so, like, fucking fishermen and, like, people in, like, fucking, like, regulars in bars that he would go in and, like, yeah. meet,
1: like, daily and stuff like that. His buddies just hung out at the local bars. Yeah. <laughs> and so he he wasn't, for all intents and purposes, a very successful author, writer in the world. But he just liked to go downtown, probably in a sick ass early Tommy Bahama before Tommy Bahama. Like he had his flip flops on. His Bermuda shorts. Uh huh. And he just, some kid from Chicago that just figured out how to tan, he's just down there living life with those guys. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, I don't remember if it was Cuba or if it was Key West where his fondness for daiquiris started. <laughs>
0: Um, Oh God, I think it might've actually been in Havana. Cause that's where he ends up living for oh, a good. long period of time. The longest period of time where he stayed in one place was actually in Havana, Cuba, but I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was called like the Papa uh, Dublé.
1: Yeah. Papa. Uh, yeah. Daddy's double. Yep. It was <laughs> the,
0: the daddy double. So it was the Papa Dublé. And I'm pretty sure that that's what was like his drink of choice in Havana. Um, so, at this point, like you're saying, in the 30s, kind of the wonder years, um, Pauline Ernest went on safari in Kenya in 1933. I'm not sure if this was his first one, but I know that during his first safari, he shot 30 animals on his first safari, and they included, like, three lions and then a bunch of other shit, also, which seems a little excessive for yeah. fucking, like, 30, like... <laughs> I, I think it was 10 There's a problem when weeks. people go over and kill one, which I'm not pro or anything like that. I think it's, I think we've gotten to the point now where we don't need to fucking, like kill, like, majestic African animals yeah. and shit. But to go over and just be like, I'm going to kill 30 of these fuckers.
1: That's... It One a day. I mean, that's just a month of killing straight. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you're extremely successful, I think, if you're shooting one thing. But if you're
0: not, like, disc- discreet or, like, you don't care about what you're shooting, it's probably a little bit easier if you're hunting
1: yeah. everything instead of just one thing. Just anything that moves. Mm-hmm. There could have been, like, a... Another guide for another group of hunters over there that accidentally got in his crosshairs. Yeah. This... We're going to get dark here. Do you think Ernest ever killed anybody? Yes. Really? Yeah. I just don't see it in him. I, I know that he likes to kill animals a lot, but I don't know. I think there was probably something that
0: happened, and we'll talk about it, somewhere within the course of him being... You know, covering the Spanish Civil War, and then you know the time that he might have possibly been in World War II and kind of the time between. I think there may have been a situation in which I don't think he actively went there to be like I'm going to like kill someone, but I think there might have been a situation he was put in where it was kind of a kill or be killed situation. Decisions had to be made. I. It's as, it, for me. It's as likely as it is unlikely. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm neutral about it. I don't have a yes or a no, but it's I feel like it is possible.
1: It just it's something that's kind of overarched this whole entire study for me. Like with his obsessed with he is about death and domination of things. Mm-hmm. The fact that he never took another man's life surprises me, but also at the same time like, I think he got enough of his aggression out doing this shit and watching bullfighting that he probably didn't have the desire to kill like an actual human being. I think
0: he had he was put in enough situations where he had the opportunity to do it. And nobody was going to say anything about it? Yeah, that it might have come up at, at least once. Um, But yeah, so they end up, he ends up buying a boat called, is it the Pilar? Yep. In 1934, and it is pretty much, it's either in... Key West, or it's down in Havana, right? Uh-huh. Because it's the boat he uses to basically fish for marlin. in.
1: Yeah, and he's just running it back and forth between the two because it's so close. Yeah. And it, that's 1934 is when he buys a Pilar. Uh, to Have and To Have Not comes out in 1937. Again, that was the only novel that was completely written inside of the 30s. So for the bangers that he put out when he put out A Farewell to Arms, or when he put out... um Farewell to Arms was second, and why am I blanking? Oh, The Sun Also Rises was first.
0: Yes, and this, then
1: Death in the Afternoon was out. Yeah, 32. so he hit. Um, Sun Also Rises was going to be in 1926, then uh, Men Without Women, short story 27. Uh, you have Farewell, Farewell arms. to Arms, 29 death in the afternoon is what do we say 32 Mm -hmm. that's a pretty solid hit list in about 10 years there where things just are happening very quickly so to go like almost a whole decade and i guess it was only a five-year break but it was it's
0: four pretty distinguished works by the time he's like 31 or 32
1: yeah so for him to kind of have this little wanderlust travel and do your own little thing that's cool also um safari in kenya he caught dysentery <laughs> so, God. like we say, there's always just a little bit of karma that sneaks in on him like he there's something that always is amiss whenever he travels and
0: Africa, thanks you for coming of yeah. our animals
1: he got he somehow got Montezuma's revenge in Kenya <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: that probably wasn't that uncommon
1: no no, not for uh for his kind of guts
0: so in uh thirty seven yeah to have and have not um the only one written in the thirties now in thirty seven little thing starts popping off called the Spanish civil war. And so he's like, what, what's that? There's shit going down in Europe. I think I need to be over there covering it. So he switches back into like reporter mode. Yep. And he still has these contacts where it feels like who's going to, first of all, who's going to say no from a news publication. If Ernest Hemingway comes in as like, Hey, I want to be a reporter. I want to write stuff for you guys. First of all, no one is saying fucking no, but he still has these contacts where basically does he go back and serve as a reporter for the Toronto?
1: Uh, I think this was still the Toronto. He worked for a, a newspaper in Chicago kind of as well when they were there. Mm-hmm. Being in Key West, I don't know who he was working for exactly. But yeah, he was just a war correspondent that ended up being able to go back over to Spain. So when he ran, when
0: he got over there, he ran into another writer named Martha
1: Gellhorn. And. Literally it, and figuratively. Y- yes. And he it, he knew her from, he had met her in the Keys before. mm mm-hmm. So they had had sort of a, an introduction before, and now they're meeting, but this time Pauline's at home. And if, if anything of his
0: past, his past <laughs> actions have shown us, when he runs into a woman and his wife's not around, anytime, divorce, divorce is not far behind.
1: Anytime you hear a woman in this story, she's either going to be related to Hemingway or he's going to end up marrying her. Yes. Like that's, it's either one or the other.
0: Yes. And he will be cheating on his previous wife with the one that he's going to marry. So yeah.
1: So while over there, things get sort of interesting, and there's sort of like I don't know if I would call it conspiracy because it's actually fairly true, but being over on the Spanish Civil War side, he was on the same side trying to fight, basically against. um, So the the, the, Franco.
0: Yes. So the Franco was with the rebels. So you had uh, Nazi Germany and Hitler supporting Franco and the rebels. And then you had this Russia basically supporting um, the established government, whoever it was in Spain at the time. And the communists though. Exactly. But you also, but on the other side were the Nazis so the fascists and Hemingway was like extremely anti-fascist. So he was basically coming over there and like, you know, he wasn't one to and I've heard this description of it if it's really accurate, but he was never just gonna go over there and spectate. Yeah. His intention, regardless of what he provided for his reasons, he was going over there as a participant.
1: He was going over again the same theme to be the star of the show. Exactly, for the
0: new chapter, the new character in his book. And so he takes the side essentially of, you know, the the Russians who are backing, not really the Russians, but the side that was being backed by the Russians. Communist. The communists. And he starts to kind of establish relationships with these people. In in what manner and for what purpose, it's kind of speculative.
1: Well, he, and it was found actually in the Russian archives, mm-hmm. had a file with the precursor to the KGB.
0: Yeah, I forgot what it was called. It was like
1: four it's four letters. letters yeah, like, yeah, KV something or other. Right? Something or, yeah, that something, Yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Bad organization. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they they had made contact with him while he was over there during the Spanish Civil War Mm -hmm. and kind of talked to him because they had seen, there were certain things, it was right when they had gotten to Key West, I think, and forgive me for not having all of this, but there was some sort of incident that happened um, at a site over there, and I think it was a fire that burned through all these houses. Well, these houses were just like ramshackle shacks, and it was all it was it uh, a
0: fire or a hurricane
1: or Might have been like a tropical hurricane. Sta- a tropical storm. S- something like that to that effect. But it had blown through these just poor kind of it was worker it was worker housing yeah it was worker housing Mm -hmm. but it was worker housing from world war one vets that had come back and that was what they had gotten Uh uh-huh so he had written some pretty negative things about america and about capitalism when he got back and seen that
0: yeah it was a like a really scathing letter in his way of fucking cutting quick with very few words um, of the U.S. government for basically failing these vets for basically allowing them to have to be put into these situations where they were having to live in like basically like tent housing for these jobs and everything, and so yeah, I think that perked up the the Russians. and again, they're not you know considered our our enemy at this point. You know, they're, no, they're going to be our allies in World War II, but there's always going to be some suspicion that immediately right after it's Cold War.
1: Well, and capitalism is always the antithesis of yeah. communism anytime there is capitalism there's mm-hmm. always a fear of communism yeah. that's, that's but, sort of
0: how it goes but they saw he may have been disgruntled with the you know the american government and had had a couple conversations the details aren't specific but i'm sure there was a couple pitches of like hey well you don't want to come over here we can help you out a little bit or you can start giving us some yeah. information we'll help you out but you have a man who probably doesn't really
1: need any help not only that, the, the weirdest thing I think, and that's saying that's the weirdest is carrying a lot of water in this podcast. But he was so not political in the things that he did and said. Like he kind of gave it to everybody. At yeah, time. the only
0: reason that he wrote that letter is because it was something that directly was related to him that he saw with his own eyes he was just
1: reporting what he saw in a very scathing manner
0: and he had a and he had a direct connection and sympathy for those because he had served himself or was wounded and saw what happened in world war
1: one yeah not to say that communism is right or fascism would have been right at that time but he had already been over to spain and seen what he had loved about spain for so long that he didn't want to see fascists come in and ruin Spain because yeah. that was what he loved. So it wasn't necessarily about a political ideology as it was just about what him seeing is something is right and something is wrong yeah So the connections that they had, like Chris said, not, anything that I would say was solid. Like when they looked through the article or not the article, but the file that they had on him, he hadn't really given them anything. No, it was, it was basically like
0: a dossier on him about what, how they could possibly try to reach him or try to get him over. It wasn't like he had a file of missions that he had done for the pre KGB or anything.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there was a connection, not really that connection, but uh, after he gets back early 1939, Hemingway moves to Cuba Havana. And this is during the separation with Pauline, as we sort of alluded to when we introduced Martha into this story. Uh, He was joined by Martha down there, so I'm sure things started off pretty hot and heavy down in Cuba. But uh, after the divorce was finalized, he married Martha November 20th in 1940, this time in that same weird place, that same odd travel triangle of Cuba, France, or Cuba, Europe, and Wyoming. They were married in Wyoming.
0: Well, and you got to think, like, at a time, probably, like, a, a question would be, like, well, why is he living in Cuba? Like, this is at a time where, if you're thinking about it, this is pre-Castro. Yep. Pre, you know, Bay of Pigs, all that kind of stuff. Pre, um, what's what was it called when they were, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. So Havana is basically just, like, fucking popping. It's gambling. It's fucking nightlife. It's all that crazy shit when you think of, like, fucking Cuban flavor and all that shit.
1: Yeah, I, I could go on for days about all the cool things I think that... It, can't do it. Well can't, even can't say so, it out loud. All the cool Cuban things that, like, it's... I don't know if you can say that. That are Cuban. Yeah. But, you know,
0: in this situation, Martha, having maybe kind of looked into the past a little bit and said, <laughs> I can't let this motherfucker get out around other women or I'm going to end up the next divorce and he's going to be marrying the woman he's cheating on me with. So instead of allowing them to live in, like, downtown Havana, where Ernest, you know, had a little more access to the nightlife and everything, she actually moved them into, oh, what was the name of the estate? Um, La Pica? Oh, I can't remember I don't what it is. remember. But she ends up moving them into, like, an estate outside of Havana. And I'll, I'll look up the name for it here in a second. But that was kind of what was thought to be part of her intention, was moving him away to kind of remove some of the... the the temptation
1: yeah I do wonder like do you think that all the time that he had spent in Cuba when he was living in Key West and just the amount of like relationships that he established in Cuba at that time when he's like hey boys moving in everybody's like fuck we only had to see this guy like three days a week before. Now he's just going to be on this close ass island that we're going to be seeing his ass every single day. And I don't know what it was about him. Depends on if he was good about buying rounds. <laughs> yeah, I. He had this propensity to like want to physically try people, which I think plays into a theory that I'm going to spring on you a little bit later. But the, fi- the finca, the
0: finca, finca, was uh, finca, Veriga. Or Vigia. And what... Oh, fuck. I remembered what the translation was. It was like Watchful Hill because you could see over the whole, um, like, the whole area. Hopefully it's not
1: Verga because Verga is penis.
0: No, (laughs) I don't think it's finca Verga. (laughs)
1: Okay.
0: Is that what it is in in Cuban as well? Uh,
1: It's Spanish. I don't know what it is in Cuban. But there were situations like he would meet these people and because he was a boxer back then, he always thought that he could like outbox people. Mm -hmm. So he would be in a situation where they'd be hanging out and he'd be like, Hey F Scott, you want to throw hands? Like you want to have a little fun? You want to box? And there were times when he he would, you know, slap the guy around. There were a few times in his life where he'd say, Hey, do you want to box? And the guy'd be like, yeah, sure. I, I know a little bit about boxing and they'd put on the gloves and guy would just light Hemingway up. Just straight jabs to the face, Mm -hmm. and he was such just a bad loser at everything that I don't remember who it was that he was boxing against, but the guy had stuck him in the mouth two or three times, and his mouth was just filling up with blood as they were sparring, and he hit him one more time, and Hemingway just turned around and spit his blood on the dude. (laughs) <laughs> like, it was that kind of a poor sport about losing and shit. So all this these, is how I win. Yeah. So all these Cubans are down there, like God. That guy that gets drunk and wants to box us all the time is moving in the now. Fucking blood spitter. God damn it. So
0: yeah, the and it means the Hill Farm. Oh, that's what the translation of it is. But this is um, and this place is still available to to be seen in Havana. It's actually like a national monument down there. And weirdly enough, apparently, like, between that and his actual, the boat, the Pilar, there have been, like, joint United States-Cuban, um like, projects. It's the only
1: thing we That's can agree on. That's the only thing they'll
0: fucking agree on is Hemingway. <laughs> Fuck everything else, but when it comes to Hemingway, everyone's like, we claim him, we claim him. Um, When did he start going to Sun Valley? Uh, they, <laughs> he was just... Because I heard that he went between like also, and it also makes sense because Havana is the place where he lives the longest. But he would go between like one of the stops that he would make would be in Sun Valley, Idaho.
1: Yeah, he kind of adopted the snowbird thought process way earlier in life than most people do. But he would spend his summers um, at a residence in a just a little town outside of another little town, Sun Valley, Idaho, and Ketchum. And I still believe that his house in Ketchum has been preserved as well. So I think there's some monuments in that area kinda of, and I have been to Sun Valley and Ketchum myself. I think you might have too. I haven't yet. But there's a lot of like subtle nods in these small towns in uh, Idaho where it's like, yeah, this is Hemingway's Benny's and like breakfasts and drinks mm-hmm. and all sorts of things named after him.
0: This is kind of one of I think I've talked to you about this, but this was also one of the things that was kinda of like like eh, about Hemingway is how it can get kind of culty. It, it, there can be like some Hemingway cultishness, like when a you bit. like there's like these weird like monuments to another. And I realize there's probably like if there was Mark Twain's house, which I, th- I think that's a real thing. It's like Mark Twain's house is a monument or something like that. Graceland, man. There you go. Okay, <laughs> but but still at the same time, like to have three of these fucking places and have everyone being like, no, he belongs to us. No, he belongs to us. I think part of it though. It, it is, everyone wants to claim it a little bit, have that little claim.
1: Yeah, but think of the way that you and I started this research and our thoughts on Hemingway. Yeah, think about where we sit now. Yeah, like once you hear some of this shit, you just can't help but be like, eh. And have so a there smile is there your is a,
0: a seductive quality to Hemingway. Yeah. I can't think is what you're saying. And if you don't already start out in a negative viewpoint, and it's nothing but positive, it can take you into that culty, mm-hmm.
1: much faster.
0: worshipy type like type shit
1: we came into it negative and ended up sort of even yeah if you started even you're hitting positive real quick yeah that makes sense so yeah he would spend his summers and catch them he would spend his winters in cuba when it was hot in cuba his ass would be in uh western idaho maybe and then when it was cold as shit there in the winter time he'd be down in the warm-ass cuba like that's a brilliant way to live your Mm -hmm. life and that was 1939 and he ended up, or I guess it was 38 into 39, because in 1940, or in 1939, he published um, For Whom the Bell Tolls. So. And that was the one about the Spanish
0: Civil War, correct?
1: Yes. Okay. So, again, just taking from that information mm-hmm. that he had just absorbed being in the Spanish Civil War, all of a sudden you're on the other side of it writing a fictional sort of true story. Yes. And with that book, it's basically like boom, Hemingway's back. Yeah, they they loved him. And like it, we're, we're
0: the like you you thought he was done, you thought he was out. He's back.
1: Yeah, he kind of reclaimed that spot that we were talking about of being like the greats. He had a few stinkers in there. He had a few throwaways, and this was just he was right in there again.
0: He's like Brendan Fraser. Fraser.
1: Yeah, hopefully with less male on male exploitation. Yeah, that's true. Right. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the NKVD was the predecessor to the that's KGB. Right, yep. And the NKVD may have had some more contacts. Um, his current wife, uh, Bellhorn. Gellhorn. G- Gellhorn, that's right. Bellhorn didn't sound right.
0: What was her first name? Martha.
1: Martha. Martha was on assignment as a writer herself in China in 1941. Hemingway, I'm sure, was over there with her trying to figure out how to stir some shit up in China Mm -hmm. so he could looking for some looking for some strange in the east yeah yeah. do you think that he might have started the conflict and tensions between Japan and China I wouldn't put it past him (laughs) he was this is 41 so
0: I think shit had been brewing between those two peoples for a while
1: then But yeah, he he may have had more communist ties with the NKVD in China in 1941. At least made contact, at least did a little talking. Do you know what I think part of it is,
0: too? I don't think he ever had the intention of... He didn't like government in general, I really don't think, which is why he felt so free about moving to all these different places. There was never a concern with him living in all these different places, different parts of the world. Like, he just goes to China to do this. I think part of it, what it was also, is it was just like for the story. Like, why can't I talk to these guys? Like, this would be like, cool. I could write this shit down. Uh-huh. Like,
1: I should play yeah. these guys a little bit, like find out where it fucking goes. Like it's part of the adventure. Well, and had the uh, predecessor been like, we're going to make you our top spy. He'd probably be like, I'm going to hang out with you. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to make me number one, I'm in mm-hmm. like, let's do this. But since it was just like, Hey, we need this, this, and this from you, he's probably like, Hey, eh, I'm just going to be apolitical. And that's, what I was talking about with like when he spoke out against America, he didn't really give a shit about politics, yeah. he didn't really give a shit about communist, capitalist, anything like that. He just saw good and bad, sort of. Yeah, and he was mostly bad, but he was fighting another, for another woman when he was married. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fighting for some noble causes along the way. And so, again,
0: this is 1941, so depending on when in 1941, if it's not toward the end of it, the Japanese haven't bombed Pearl Harbor, I would assume, at this point
1: because um, they. They had moved back to Cuba, or they had returned to Cuba before the U.S. declared into World War II. Okay, and basically what he ends up doing for his service for
0: World War II is fucking bonkers, but might be one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard anybody do. So he's a celebrity at this point. He lives in Cuba, and he basically goes to the military, and he says... I have a boat. Why don't you guys give me shit weapons I can put on my boat? He's like, and I'll patrol for you boats. Because apparently down in the Caribbean, there was like quite a few. I'm trying to think what they said. 13 ships sunk like weekly. Shipping like United States or Allied ships by U-boats down in the Caribbean because weirdly enough as it sounds, man, there were U-boats that sailed all the way across the Atlantic to like the eastern seaboard and also into the Caribbean.
1: You could see that though because you had to get past sort of the blockades of what was going on in England at the time, probably. So you wanted to be further in the Atlantic towards a side that wasn't at war with you yet. Yeah. And you wanted to disrupt kind of that trade That's back That's true, because if
0: you're going to England, they know what route you're going to mm-hmm. take, whereas you could possibly be taking your stuff to supply in Italy or yeah. North Africa or something, then move it up that way.
1: Yeah, well, that makes sense. I had heard this twice. there would be stuff going both ways. Yeah. You'd be, you'd be sending shipping both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd heard two different versions of this one was the american military the other one was the cuban military mm-hmm. and his pitch was to the cubans was um i'll go out and defend your as part of the caribbean mm-hmm. and make sure that they don't get it in was, here i'm to pretty you. confident
0: it was the american military because i don't think the cuban military had the weaponry at the time in world war ii to outfit his boat i don't
1: think it was the weaponry he wanted
0: it wasn't, but th- here's what I'm getting at. So he basically gets set up with like this naval liaison officer who pretty much provides him like arms and everything. But what they also provided him was something that had been rationed during the war, and that was diesel. So Hemingway, <laughs> surprise, surprise, no confirmed U boat sinkings.
1: But he, he had did. one. He had one where they put on a real valiant chase. I guess they had spotted it, and the guns or something wasn't right. Probably they were all piss ass drunk on the boat mm-hmm. when they saw it. And they went on a chase. Or it was just like a wave that might have been taller than the rest of them that they thought they were chasing. It (laughs) it could have been mm, a whale, yeah. um,
0: That had just surfaced for a second. But basically what the thought process is, is that he used this as an excuse to go out and fish. Because it was the way for him to get diesel fuel as well. Plus, I mean, if something were to happen, he did happen to sink a U-boat or get in some type of engagement. Can you imagine the fucking story about that? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. A world-famous author... Ernest Hemingway sinks U-boat in the Caribbean. Come on, like, fucking seriously? That's everywhere. Yes. And so
0: he ends up, um, yeah, unfortunately getting skunked in his U-boat hunt. And he actually went to, this is where the whole, for, and up to this point, with, between Paris, where all these authors are, the Forrest Gump comparison right here. Yeah. He is out on a ship. During fucking D-Day, a lander
1: like one of the ships that took the that soldiers. were the ones that
0: were had troops, but he wasn't on one of the how, the Higgins boats. I thought he was, but he wasn't on one of the ones that landed. No, nope, he was on one of the Higgins because they wouldn't; those things were so unstable. He okay. was on one of the troop transports that were lowering guys onto Higgins boats. Okay, and was there like as a war correspondent, but basically because some of the shit went south during the Normandy landings, and I want to say he might have been at Omaha. I because think that he was, was going to be the American beach that they were landing
1: at. And they started to take cannon fire, and so they turned him around because yep, so he, he was like— Yep, because they couldn't land any war correspondents or journalists on the beach. He was the—they called him like precious cargo or something like that. Like, if he went over there and he died, I'm sure that probably would have been some scuttlebutt been about a little that. Bit of a, a little bit of a morale boost for the Nazis. We got Hemingway. This—just to start with that. The fact that this gets just so much more unbelievable as we go on. It's so funny to think about because it sounds completely
0: made up bullshit like, oh, yeah. And did you also it would just be on the list of accolades. It's, it's, it's the Chuck Norris shit.
1: Did you know I was in World War Two? Yeah.
0: It's just that thing where it's like, oh, and did you know that Hemingway also was on uh, one of the ships during off- Operation Overlord? Like no he was. He, how many more things is this guy gonna fucking do? It's like, well, I didn't say he landed, but he was yeah. there on one of the ships in the English Channel watching the fucking beach landings happen.
1: So this this is if we're talking about stories that happened during World War II while like on a scale of like I don't one know to how 10, the fuck
0: this didn't come up during the Overlord research.: Yeah,
1: it, it probably should have. That might have been an oversight, but on like a one to 10 Hemingway scale.
0: I'm actually glad it didn't, because if, if that's including, hey, by the way, Hemingway was on one of these boats, I
1: think you're missing the point of, of what, what that whole thing was about. Yeah. yeah, But this is like a three on this trip for a Hemingway deal, because after this, he rides around and he ends up, um, a- after he does the Normandy landings, uh, he is present at the liberation of Paris. He had said that when they swept into Paris, he had gone and taken over the, oh, what was the hotel? It was a hotel that they had always like stayed at. Like the Royal at. Parisian or something like that? Um, God, I, I want to say that it's still there. But he had said that they had liberated the bar as well. <laughs> That's right. Him and like a colonel or an admiral yeah. or something like when, that. When in all actuality, they had the already... Ritz. Huh? It was at the Ritz. The Ritz. Okay, That's the right. Ritz, yeah. So he said that he went liberated the bar at the Ritz... But in all actuality, they had already been, they had already swept and taken back over Paris and he had just sort of rolled in after everything had happened. He was happened.
0: with the occupation force or like the conquering force. It's not like he was the, like the tip of the spear yep. coming in being like, yeah, they had swept in. They had claimed Paris. Sure. There could have been a sniper
1: hiding somewhere mm-hmm. or something like that. But yeah. So that, but, but still. We'll give that a, a five on the Hemingway story scale, uh, skip a little bit ahead for a second just because this is another lower number covered the battle of the bulge he, he was there in at Bastogne. the battle huh
0: in bastone yeah yeah
1: at the battle of the bulge
0: so that's got to be a four again he wasn't there on the line uh-huh. on the front or anything like that but he was there covering
1: yeah it. so that again we'll call that a four maybe like a six just because of that famousness if we want to know what a 10 is on the hemingway scale on his way through, he had befriended a group of rebel French fighters and had taken them over as their captain. Oh, yeah. He talked these guys into following him as their general while he was a war correspondent mm-hmm. and had led these guys back to the battalion that he was falling around with. And they're like, what the fuck is that? He's like, are my guy's. Yeah, uh, I found these guys. Yeah, and I got all their my guns guys. and shit. Turns out they know who I am. They're a pretty mm-hmm. big fan of me. Uh, they made me their general, so I'm gonna go ahead and take them in. And he ends up getting It's like when you go on a fucking desert island, like they just made me be their king. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He ends up getting brought on charges because apparently it's very illegal for somebody that's a war correspondent to actually take control. Or to form, like, a militia (laughs) during fucking active wartime or some shit. And his remarks back to it, I don't remember what it was exactly, but he's like, I couldn't show up empty-handed. Yeah. (laughs) I had to bring in these rebel fighters with me as I came in. Like, I needed a big grand entrance. So that would be a 10 on a Hemingway story that he went over as a war correspondent, tore off his war correspondent, like, patch.
0: corroborated this story. Because this is what I'm no, talking they, about. This sounds... They brought
1: him up on charges for this. So this was like an official thing.
0: I heard some stuff that he also got into a couple skirmishes with these rebel fighters. Like was yeah. actual stuff that he did maybe he just brought them back to camp and that was, like, his initial action. Then he was going to do some shit. But I think maybe there might have been some embellishment about, like, what he did along, like, fighting, like, the Definitely Nazis these guys. Yeah. these guys.
1: Just the fact that he shows up in a foreign country that's not foreign to him and then runs into some regulars. He's like, hey. Rolls
0: into the fucking command post. And not only is it some American guy, a war correspondent, like, with a bunch of, like, <laughs> French rebels, it's fucking Ernest Hemingway. Yep. And that that goes so much into the... He just thought he could do whatever. Like it, that that probably didn't like the idea of him getting in trouble for that. He oh, yeah, never entered no, his head.
1: That never crossed his mind. Yeah. Trouble was the furthest thing that he was thinking about at that point.
0: Well, we find ourselves in March 1945 and it's been a while so what do we get to? It, time time on the old uh, expiration clock for his marriage is starting to run out.
1: Yeah, I, we forgot to mention it um again use our little bit of words to figure out what's coming up next. But when he landed in Europe in 1944, he met a girl named Mary Welsh. Mm. So again, by how this story you is going, I think this we know. Dirty dog, <laughs> where this out of your
0: fucking sight for a minute, and especially <laughs> not in a war. This is what gets his dick the hardest. Oh yeah, he had his first war boner back in WW1. Fell in love with a nurse who broke his heart. And now, around war now. He's just looking to plow.
1: Yeah, and now he's got it figured out. Now he wants to make sure to get her nailed down before he leaves the country. Mm-hmm. So he goes ahead, brings her back. Um, Martha divorces him in 1945. He marries Mary, rough wordage, in 1946. So maybe he gave it a little bit more time. I don't know when it was in 45 and 46. Like It could have been December, January, like most of the other mm-hmm. relationships have been, but there may have been some time this time. And Mary was like, Determined to be the last Hemingway wife. They were all determined to be well, the last Hemingway wife. This lady put up with a lot of shit. There was an argument that they had gotten into in a hotel, and he had uh, pulled out his trusty shotgun that keeps showing up in this story, too. And he had actually, out of anger, fired the shotgun in the hotel room and blew up the toilet <laughs> in the bathroom. <laughs> She stuck around through that. So she was pretty determined to be the last one. Uh, 1947, he receives a Bronze Star for bravery for taking over, a not not for taking the rebel French troops, but just for being over there and probably seeing so much shit that he had seen. And 47 gets really rough because he's starting to lose a lot of his friends. They're dying off, dying early by all accounts. His body really starts Such as to... as artists do. Yeah. Yeah body starts to slow down pretty immensely. Like it's being overweight is really kicked in hypertension in his heart starting to work. I'm sure his liver was probably screaming for any sort of help. Things start to get a little bit rough for him. What was his drinking regimen like? I'm trying to remember. Um, I never saw specifically his drinking regimen, but one of the quotes that he had had um, about kind of his day was he says, um, uh, when I'm working on a book or a story, I write everything or I write every morning as soon as the first light is possible. There's no one to disturb you and it is cool or cold. You come to your work and warm as you write, you read what you have written. And as you always stop when you know what is going to happen next, that seems weird to stop when you know what's going to happen next. Um, And then you go on from there. you write until you come to a place where you still have your juice and know what will happen next. And you stop and try to live through until the next day when you can hit it again, which is very apt for him because after he got done writing and starting boozing and going out on the deep sea fishing boat, like living to write again the next day seems pretty poignant for him. Yeah. Um, You. Have started at 6 in the morning and say you may go on until noon or uh, be through before that. When you stop, you are as empty and at the same time never empty but filling as when you have made love to someone you love. Nothing can hurt you. Nothing can happen. Nothing means anything until the next day when you do it again. It is the wait until the next day that is hard to get through. Pretty passionate words for a guy who I think was just sort of passionate about everything. Yeah. Like even the bad things he was passionate about. Mm -hmm. He was passionate about hating his, or his, his boys. He was bad about loving his wives. He just, whatever he did good or bad, he threw himself into it. Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, born of all that experience and the stories and everything like that. Um, he, well, actually, that's going to be a little bit later. Sorry. In 47, he actually gets the Bronze Star for bravery. Yeah. I, I don't know what the situation was for that. Was it just him being a war correspondent?
1: I, like I was saying, I, I, it would have had to have been Omaha Beach. I don't know. Just I'd being look- out there during a, a fire like that mm-hmm. or being fired at. I don't know if it's like an honorary thing because he was never
0: in the actual military. I, I don't know how that works with like a war correspondent. No. So, in 1950, um, Across the River and Into the Trees is released,
1: and that one is (laughs) not received very well. Well, it was also a double, because he had written it over in France, where he was staying with the royal family, him and Mary were, and he took a liking to the guys, to the king or to the nobleman, whoever it was, his 19-year-old daughter. Really? Yep. And... This is the one exception to the rule of this entire story. He doesn't marry her, but he becomes infatuated with her. And the whole premise behind um, Across the River and Into the Trees is basically like the love story of an old tattered general that falls for this young vixen. Mm-hmm. And so he he has his muse, but he doesn't marry her this time. Do you like think I Mary's, said, Mary's looking to him read this book mean like,
0: who the fuck's this vixen?
1: Oh yeah, I think she knew
0: pretty the well. Old, who, you better not be that old motherfucking general. Yeah, I I, I think it was over. No, in no, Venice. honey, he's French.
1: He's French. <laughs> that's you know completely, that's completely not me. Legal. Yeah, that's I, totally not me. I'm, I'm from Chicago, babe. I'm not from France. Yeah. No. So, that's where I say like Mary was bound and determined. Like he wrote this book about this 19 year old girl, mm-hmm. and she was just bound and determined to be the last Hemingway wife. So she was cool with it. Gets through it. The book is just absolutely torn apart. It's made fun of. They say that he's lost his fastball. Same old boring Hemingway now is coming out. Like all these bad things are being said about him. Give us something new. Yeah. And uh, he responds in kind. It takes him a little bit longer. But this is where he finally writes The Old Man and the Sea. And The Old Man and the Sea, the main character in it, technically the only character in it, the only human character in it, is <clears throat> excuse me, is written about his captain... Of the Pilar. Yeah. And just about the experiences that he draws from his bravery and the way that he does things is mm-hmm. how The Old Man in the Sea is written. And The Old Man and the Sea, again, my level of books isn't really great, but Old Man and the Sea was fantastic. I loved it. And everybody else did, too, because it secured in the Pulitzer Prize in May 1953. Nice. Which... That's got to be big. The fact that he had done so much work before and it took him all this time until 1953. I'm sure getting a Pulitzer is very, very hard. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he finally gets it after his last book was just unanimously hated. It was like the biggest fuck you to come back and get a win like that. Oh, yeah, I would imagine. Um, 1954. (laughs) We see the man. Go all the way back to Africa again. And this trip is a little bit different than the first time. Uh, goes over there with Mary. They are involved in a plane crash that he lives through. That him, um, the his wife, Mary, and the pilot all lived through. Their injuries were bad enough that they couldn't be treated in the town that they were brought to after the crash. So. You don't say that there's... a.
0: <laughs> not a lot of places in Africa at the time in 54 that you can be treated after a plane crash. Yeah, prob-
1: probably not. So what do you do? And I mean, luck is on your side. If you just got in a plane crash that day and you're being flown out to go to somewhere else, like you can't get in two plane crashes within One 24 would hours, think. right? It's just impossible. One would think. Well, we're talking about Ernest Hemingway here. We're talking about the literary Forrest Gump gets in another plane crash the very next day. It's literally the rescue plane. Yeah. To get yeah. them out and to get them treatment. This, uh, incredible. Uh, this is like Howard Hughes level shit. Well, and this
0: one actually fucks him up pretty bad. Yeah. So he ends up getting like burns over like a good portion of his body. He gets a concussion because for some reason he hits the door with his head to try to open the door. Uh-huh. I don't know if his legs are broken or something like that. He had some internal injuries, right? Yeah. And he for- broke it, I think he broke his arm as well. And there was a couple other things, but he's already been someone that has had at, at minimum one, maybe two concussion, minimum two, because you had it up here that didn't I, he,
1: he had at least six or seven pretty traumatic brain injuries. One in of them, he got
0: like hit in the head on the boat or some shit like yeah.
1: that. Uh, there was another one that we forgot to mention during World War Two. But uh He went over to World War II as a correspondent. Yeah. As he got over there, he went ahead, and Gellhorn was supposed to come with him. yeah. And as she was on her way over there, all he had to do was secure her a press visa to come over. He didn't get around to it. I mean, he'd met Mary at this point, I think, so it probably was tough to remember. She ends up having to come over to World War II on an ammunition boat across the sea Is like a a hard target. I'm sure ammunition boats coming over to refuel the war efforts. Those were probably. I don't know if you
0: can know that that's what was on it, but any type of shipping
1: was targeted. Yeah. Yeah. So she's very pissed at him and finally ends up making it over like weeks after he was, or he'd gotten there Mm -hmm. before he got there, he got, or before she got there, he got in a car crash, broke his arm, head injury again there. He's in the hospital when Martha gets there and she walks in. She's like, what the fuck, dude? Where, is, where was Mary's my press hiding pass? behind the door. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> She's like, where's my press pass? He's like, hey, you made it.
0: Uh, just points at his arm. Yeah. I got hurt. Uh, that was two days ago.
1: Yeah, she is just fucking pissed at him and just storms off. Like, no care that he was in this car crash. But there again, just another scenario where... It just – it comes back around for him. Karma comes back around for him.
0: And and there's something about him when his body starts to slow down and everything. He starts to also after, you know, that book isn't well-received. He has this thing about – I don't know if it's about growing old or weakness or being incapable. But the the second plane crash, essentially, he never fully recovers from some of those no. – From some of those injuries. He still carries, you know, some, some pain and probably – A lot of fucking trauma from crashing twice in fucking the course of like one or two days.
1: Well, so long, too, that uh, when October 1954 rolls around and he receives the Nobel Prize for Literature, Mm -hmm. he just has to write in a a thank you, like a speech, because he's still at home recovering. Yeah,
0: where is it held at? uh, I want to say it's somewhere in Europe, right? Luxembourg? Yeah, somewhere. And this guy will do anything to get to fucking Europe. Yeah. Any chance he... He meets all his new wives in Europe for some shit. So he's like, I can't get over and get my new wife. I mean, my Nobel Prize.
1: Maybe that was it. Maybe uh, Mary was running Munchausen Syndrome on him and Mm -hmm. just keeping him sick so he couldn't get over there and try to find a new wife. We got
0: a Kathy Bates misery (laughs) situation going on. He's a writer. That's where the inspiration for where Stephen King got it. It
1: was actually Mary keeping him fucking home. Last time they went over there, uh, Mary dodged the the bullet of the 19 year old Italian princess, princess yeah. and wasn't going to take another chance on it, but he seems like pretty fulfilled. And I'm sure at this point, like this is, you basically receive sainthood while you're still alive. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty huge to get the Nobel prize for literature. And after that, uh, he starts to move towards building his memoir, which was a movable feast. There was a situation, I think it goes all the way back, I think Hadley was the one, where she was coming to him... Well, he was on location writing, and he had asked her to bring all of his previous works. And this is back in the Hadley days, so nothing had been published. Oh, yes, I heard about this. And as she was coming through a train station, the trunk that had all of his old works was stolen. So Mm -hmm. he basically lost everything that he had. It was like
0: the uh, copies and like the carbon
1: originals. Yeah. All of it. And it was like three books worth of his early works. Everything was gone. Well, he ends up back in Paris, uh, finding like two or three things that were, that hadn't made it into the trunk that he hadn't known that weren't stolen. Mm -hmm. So he starts to add those into the memoir to start building it. But he's working on that. He's working on some, uh, some short stories. Like he wasn't single minded in what he was doing. So it just kept getting pushed off, pushed off, pushed off. Um, and they end up buying their house outside of Ketchum in Idaho, 1959. And they need to do it because July 25th, 1960, they leave Cuba for good. So, and Yeah, this is
0: when Castro starts coming into power. This is when there's... Yeah. The Cuban um, Revolution happens. Yep, the Cuban Revolution happens. This is when there starts to become, you know, again, this is going to be in the Cold War. Like, Cold War is popping off at this point. We're now in the 60s. So, Cuban Revolution, it's hostile for Americans. If Hemingway had it his way, he would have fucking stayed. Yeah. I mean, if it wasn't, there, you know, certain things were unavoidable. But Hemingway, in his eyes, he, he, I don't know if he, he was a man that didn't really identify with the country, I think, in some ways. I think he did and didn't. He just kind of wanted to be like a a citizen of all these different cultures. And when he was down there in Cuba, because he lived there so long, he considered himself just to be another Cuban, you know, Cuban national. Yeah. And so for him to have to leave, because when he left, they said he left basically like he wasn't, he was coming back. He didn't pack up anything. Like all the stuff they have preserved down there, it looks like someone just stepped out to run to the fucking grocery store. And so when he had to leave, I think not only just the physical losing that place that he'd been so long, I think psychologically to not be allowed to go back to probably his favorite place, the place that he stayed the longest, the place where he could go out and sport fish and do all that kind of stuff. Like when it wasn't his decision. Yeah, man, at that point, and we're going to get into it here in a second, that I think was just kind of the last straw. It was, you know, he had all this freedom to go where he wanted. And now the one place that he perhaps wants to go the most, he's not allowed to go. And he's experiencing basically the deterioration of his body. And now he's missing f- what he's had his entire life is that freedom.
1: Well, and you have to think, too, as his body starts to fail and travel becomes much tougher. Yeah. And so he doesn't get to live that part of his life and that with that vibrance that he had of mm-hmm. being able to, excuse me, be like a, a temporary citizen in an area.
0: He's no longer on. earnest going out. Cheating on his wife, marrying the next one. He's not that
1: he's not that earnest anymore. Apparently I mean he he <laughs> could be if he had the physical attributes, but this I'm sure isn't a shot at the women of Ketchum that he wasn't didn't find himself one last mm-hmm. and final wife there. His body may have just finally gone. Mm-hmm, yeah. But there's probably some sturdy gals in Ketchum. Could be. Logging yeah. women. Some some winter hardened women that's down right there. Uh December 1960. Excuse me, he is admitted to the Mayo Clinic for I think they said hypertension was the first time, but mentally he was really struggling. Like his depression had yeah. kind of fully kicked in. Uh there's sort of an interesting theory, I guess, that it was for the prior two or three generations before Hemingway there had been somebody in the family line that had committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And so they almost believe like that it was sort of like a... A genetic predisposition. Yes, to have the kind of depression, I think, that he had suffered Mm -hmm. from. And, I mean, I I really... Even without that kind of predisposition, I think that he had probably seen some pretty bad shit and probably had been a party to some Mm -hmm. atrocities that had weighed on his mind. He had seen a lot. And maybe he was able to compartmentalize
0: that a lot when he was younger. And now that he was kind of left with a situation in which he didn't have all of his physical faculties and all this stuff to distract him or to, to fill that void. And he just sat, especially writing his memoirs. He was having to probably revisit a lot of that shit. I would imagine. And some of that, just knowing that, you know, first of all, he's old. He's not going to be that young man again. And then having to write down all these things that have been, he's lost and things like that. And knowing that maybe his best and knowing essentially his best days are behind him. Yeah, they when he went to the Mayo uh, Clinic in 1960, the th- the fucking treatment at that point was electroconvulsive therapy, and that's where they hook up what you see in fucking like American Horror Story and yep. shit like that, where they hook up the fucking electrodes and you think they're gonna fucking what do they call it, lobotomize? Yeah, like electronically lobotomize someone and basically pass a current through your fucking brain. And after the first time, like the first session that did this. It didn't he- it help him. It in fact made it harder for him to remember shit, and made it harder for him to essentially try to be normal.
1: Well, yeah, they hit him with it fifteen times. <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't know how the fuck this was ever thought of as a, and not only that, but he's like a fucking famous yeah. person. Like, there's not that's like the kind of treatment that you would go to if you didn't have means. It seems
1: like I, I think they still do it today. Honestly, I-, I think that it's still a part of a regiment today. So. Back then, I'm sure it was probably like this is top of the line technology that we're going to hit you with. Now, this is probably like the last thing that they try.
0: There was another incident too, where and it's going to kind of lead up to the incident, but there was another one where I want to say it was his his wife came in and he was sitting with a shotgun on his lap and the two shells were on the windowsill but within reach mm-hmm. and she had, she just sat down and started talking to him and everything. And then I don't know if she had called someone or had like signaled to someone to call and called his doctor again. And the doctor came in and they talked, and were able to get the gun away from him. And I think he had to go back for another fucking round at the yeah. mail Clinic. where they're like, Oh, th- th- this thing that apparently <laughs> had so much success, maybe we didn't shock him enough.
1: Or maybe maybe we hit him too many times. Maybe we just
0: go 10 this time. (laughs) We got to try to reverse course. Yeah. We use a reverse current or some shit like that and try to get him back to where he was. (laughs) You think
1: That's Uh, what it was? Was they just swapped the electrodes mm -hmm. on either side of his head this time? You know what?
0: We may have had these on (laughs) wrong the first time. I think these might have been reversed. People are not good at labeling these.
1: It turns out that it didn't really matter, though. No. Because... Upon returning home, I think it was like two days after he had been home. Yep.
0: So on July second, nineteen sixty one, uh, he shoots himself with said shotgun, and um, with his favorite shotgun, he said, w- "Yeah, with his favorite shotgun, and uh, yeah, in uh, Ketchum, Sun Valley area." So that's that's Idaho's claim to fame when it comes
1: to Hemingway is we were the place that killed Hemingway. Oh, that's rough. He had seen some bad stuff. I. <laughs> again i it can't be a reflection on the good people of Ketchum i don't know if they're good or not but yeah that's it's rough man it's it's a tough way to go out but it just it plays so much into his father shooting himself if he had these other suicides in further generations and he had said something along the lines when he started losing friends that every man dies the same way the only thing that's different is how they're remembered and what's said about them after they die. It's it's something like that, or it's something about the manner in which they The lived lives and, they lived and the stories they told. Uh,
0: some, yeah, something like that. But I think, you know, to Hemingway, and there's no one can assume the reason unless there's a very clearly written note and it actually tells the truth about why someone does something. But I think for Hemingway, it really was just a matter of him maybe understanding that the best days were, were past him and that just after the life that he had lived, maybe he just felt that he, he didn't want to just deteriorate and drift off into nothingness, that this was maybe the last bit of control that he had was, was doing this action. Um, The decline came pretty quickly. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, And then um, a movable feast, which was his memoir um, was published in 1964.
1: So posthumously three years afterwards, I wonder if they had somebody who had known him maybe come through and try to organize the thoughts or they just released it as it was.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and in a lot of those situations, they'll have family come in or, you know, friends come in that might have been writers and try to kind of clean it up or editors and then the family reads and approves it. But it, it ended up making it out. I don't, you know, I, I've never read it myself or anything like that. It might be time I actually pick it up and, and take a look at this how this guy described his life. That's the tricky thing. I think about memoirs is memoirs are going to be from the person that it's discussing. And so with this guy, you know, I'm sure most of it will be true, but there's always going to be that question about, you know, which of these situations did he put his, his Hemingway twist on it?
1: Yeah. Either that or like how many things did he see that he wasn't, it wasn't him, but goes into the book as an action that he took. Well, I, I think, at this point, I feel like just after going through everything that he did, he kind of deserves it. Like, th- this is sort of in the same vein of, like, because I've told you whenever somebody asks me my age now, I just fire the first number off my head, like, I just lie about it because it's so low stakes that it just doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. If somebody's like, how old are you? And I say 26. It's not going to matter that I'm 30, whatever. Like, it's it's never going to play a role. Like, after you turn whatever age to rent a car, Uh your age really doesn't matter at that point. So with him, I feel like he's lived such a life to where I really have no problem with him making these things up. Like, he he's done enough in his life to deserve That's the crazy the, thing, is you don't know.
0: Yeah. There's not a clear line about what could be embellished or what couldn't be embellished.
1: But it doesn't make me mad at what he would have embellished.
0: Yeah, at, at this point, too, you can almost, like... He's such a fantastical person that you can almost identify this guy as a character in, in himself. Uh-huh. You could almost read his memoirs and be like, this is the fictional version. I kind of envision it like... It, it might be, or that Hemingway kind of comes across as, you know in This Is The End, that one with Seth Rogan yep. and James Rinkham, yeah, oh yeah. they're just playing exaggerated versions uh-huh. of, the, of themselves or their worst qualities. I think maybe to some degree, like, he might just be, in, in life he seems like an exaggerated person. Yeah. So for that, to have that type of restraint or not try to do that in your in your works would be tricky. I'd always be wondering, is this true? Is this true? But maybe maybe that's the point, is not knowing. His life was so crazy that you wouldn't be able to tell.
1: He just literally, he led a fairly, in the off season when he wasn't away at war, he led a fairly relaxed life. But you have to imagine any time you were read Hemingway, like you had to be on edge that you were either going to hear some shit that you didn't expect and Mm -hmm. that you don't know is true or you were going to go out and fight like a five foot Marlin in the afternoon after drinking like a fifth of scotch. Like yeah, anytime you were around him, it was lazy and relaxing to him, but to everybody else, like you had to be ready for some shit to happen. That's
0: what I'm saying is to everyone else, a a day with Hemingway could be the story of their life. Yep, It would be the thing that they remembered most or talked about most. And for Hemingway, it was just another day. Just a Tuesday. Yep. All right. You got anything else?
1: Uh, one little thing. Um, I have a couple odd sort of theories about Hemingway. Along with his NKVD ties, he also had some ties into the CIA and the FBI. Was or, it the
0: OSS before? The OSS, or was it? Yes. The OSS, okay, the precursor to the CIA. The World War II, basically what it came out of World War II, the OSS became the, the CIA.
1: I'm sure it was probably started... Well, it could have even been started around the the bad note that he had written, the bad letter that he had written about the U.S. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure him being over in the Spanish Civil War was probably covered in there. I'm sure him going over into World War II, they probably were keeping an eye on him. Um, And everything that he really kind of stood for with just his apathy towards government he had a file on him and J. Edgar Hoover had gone through it and J. Edgar Hoover personally had gone through it because there's actually citations in his handwriting in this file and basically had deemed him to be too much of a star and too much of a famous person that it would be too hard to keep him as like a KGB spy mm-hmm. or like a Soviet spy. Basically, he
0: was able to go ahead and discount him as a spy because it would be too difficult for someone of that status to, to maintain it.
1: Yeah, which good for him. Also, we have a gentleman named Martin Luther King, who was not meeting on a regular basis in foreign countries with communists and not doing anything else. When J. Edgar Hoover saw his file, he's like, "Gotta kill that guy. That guy's a threat." Hemingway, white guy hanging out with the communists, probably not a communist. Luther King talking about people's rights. Definitely a commie. Mm-hmm. Like that. That feels like there's some. You weird... know who has rights?
0: Communists. Yeah,
1: dude. That just seems like a weird privilege. Like, that... Actually, Mister
0: Hoover. I, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I don't
1: think communists <laughs> have very
0: many rights.
1: Yeah, uh, it just it blows me away. And uh, the second thing, we won't get into this too much, but I don't know where his sort of machismo comes from, but I feel like there's something more hiding under the surface of Hemingway. Mm -hmm. And I did read some things about possibly Hemingway feeling as if he could have been a trans person Mm -hmm. back in that time period. I don't think it has really anything to do with his upbringing as much as I do. It always felt like in his stories and in his memoir and things like that, he just really focuses on trying to make the most masculine things happen.
0: Yeah, like he's overcompensating, overcorrecting, trying to throw somebody off the scent of something that could be the opposite.
1: Exactly, yeah. Like like you said, just overcompensation for something. I don't know what it was. I'm not in any sort of position mm-hmm. to be able to diagnose anybody in that way. But everything felt so over the top and extra to the point to where it sort of seemed like there may have been something behind
0: (laughs) the way that he was able to just not saying able in a good way, but the way that he was able to just switch relationships seemingly with very little effort and just fall in love or say he fell in love very easily, you know, Paris in the twenties or at some point, you know, during all these connections, you get out at sea, you're out there fishing for a while. It stands to reason that like one of these love affairs that was never talked about could have possibly been with someone that wasn't a woman.
1: Yeah. And as
0: for someone who wanted to experience as much life as possible and made it a point to try to do so, it it wouldn't be that surprising. But because again, he was essential supposed to be the quintessential, you know, pillar of masculinity and manliness and everything. That was something that maybe afterward he's like, well, now I got to completely steer into the other direction Mm. and try to go kill thirty (laughs) animals on my first fucking safari.
1: Yeah, maybe it was repressed sexual anger that Mm -hmm. he was letting out on those poor African (laughs) game animals. (laughs) But again, him not being here to say, us not really hearing him bring up this topic, it's all conjecture. He could have been just the straightest man alive. He's
0: a complicated enough person that adding one more complication isn't outside the realm of possibility. Yeah. There's nothing yep. to you know, possibly maybe substantiate it, but with a lot of people who ended up coming out or you know, there's not evidence beforehand until they make it known. And that's even in today's age where everything yeah. is documented and everyone's, you know, in front of a fucking lens.
1: Had to have a different feeling inside of you that is probably pretty unheard of back in that time and being a man of such stature mm-hmm. as he was, we don't really know. And I'm not saying that he was, I'm not saying that he wasn't, I'm just saying that it was interesting throughout his life that it sort of felt like everything was to the nth degree out of almost like a... Uh, a cover yeah a little bit but uh, other than that i mean this was super duper enjoyable i have no problem looking into another author writer i'd like to get down to the answer to um fuck scott fitzgerald i really think that we probably need to take a look at him um joyce another very interesting cat but yeah it just uh this opened the door to writers i hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did so yeah, I think I'm good. Good with me.
0: All right, guys. Thanks again for joining us on another episode, and we'll uh, catch you next time. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Well, our
1: Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high that's historically hi
0: all right and if you guys want to send in any feedback suggestions hit us up on those two or you can even do it on gmail it's historically high podcast at gmail.com uh thanks again peace